This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. that I have in common with much of the country as it's constituted now. Wasn't always this way, but uh, it's certainly the case right now. One is I'm a little overweight. I'd say I'm about 20, 25 pounds heavier than I'd like to be. Although if you go with the technical requirements of what's considered overweight versus what's considered obese, uh, compared with my height, I am a little on the short side. I probably should be about 35 pounds slimmer than I am, but whatever. It is what it is. I'd be thrilled being 20 pounds lighter, but that's neither here nor there. I've always also always felt a little bit guilty about never having served in the military. The man that I'm named for, uh, the original Frank Morano, he was in the United States Army, served in World War II, was the recipient of a Purple Heart. My Uncle Caesar, uh, who I was very close to, he was uh, a triple war veteran, having served in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. And uh, that's on my dad's side, my uh, mother's side, they didn't serve much in the military because uh, really everybody before her was in Italy. So my uncle, um, all my family on that side of the family, they served in um, in the military in Italy during World War II, those that did. But that's neither here nor there. In any event, recognizing these two new realities, the Air Force is doing something that you may have heard about, although some of you may not have. The Air Force is loosening up not just their belts, but the Air Force is loosening up restrictions on body fat for recruits aiming to become airmen. For aspiring new members of the Air Force, the percentage of body fat allowed has risen to 26% for males and 36% for females. The previous requirement was 20% for males and 28% for females. In announcing this policy, the uh, Air Force Recruiting Service spokesperson Leslie Brown told Fox News, the Air Force is looking to open the aperture on qualifying a broader pool of young Americans for service in the Air Force. These changes bring the Air Force in line with Department of Defense Policy. So these new body fat standards are part of several initiatives that the Air Force implemented to appeal to more candidates hoping to join without lowering the branch's standard of what this is what they say, recruiting the best Americans to serve our nation. And this is interesting because this is part of a trend, several trends, to be honest, in the country. One, 
fewer people are volunteering to serve in the military than did 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. That's a fact. Two, Americans, even with Ozampic and Wegovy and this new bevy of weight loss drugs, Americans are out of shape. Americans are in some of the worst shape we've ever been in. Uh, This is something that is affecting adults. This is something affecting senior citizens. This is something that is affecting young people. We've been talking a little bit about these life expectancy numbers. The life expectancy in uh, this country is going in the wrong direction. We can get into what the causes are. They say the reason it's taken such a precipitous drop in the last couple of years has been drugs, COVID, lifestyle, and, yes, obesity. It is a big factor here. Now, because I don't know much about the military, well, I don't want to say I don't know much. I'm certainly no expert. I'll I'll be the first to admit that. I'm curious, does this matter, right? We Does it matter if they make it so that fatter people are eligible to serve in the Air Force? Does it matter... That whereas you would not have been able to qualify with a 26% body mass index if you were a male, and now you can, does it matter that airmen are going to be fatter? 800-848-9222. Anybody that's uh, that's ever been in the Air Force, we're going to put you to the absolute front of the line. Kenneth, please put all the veterans... Uh, especially the Air Force veterans, to the front of the line, because I'm curious about what they say here. In New York City, I talked about this in one of my local commentaries, in New York City, they just moved, They just lowered the physical requirements to become a police officer. And I think that was a result of the difficulty that they're having recruiting in terms of police in New York City, and also the difficulty in what they were having in recruiting people that meet the physical standards necessary to pass the prior test. I do think this is cause for concern. It's something of a wake-up call on both fronts, on both the military recruiting front and in terms of the obesity front. I'd love to know if... You think this is just kind of, uh, this is just a natural evolution of things. Americans are getting fatter, and our military ought to be a little fatter to to reflect the increasing heft of the population that it fights for. Or is this something that we should worry about? I tend to think it might be something we should worry about, both from a public health standpoint, a public defense standpoint, and from a standpoint of exploring why fewer people want to join the military right now. I have certainly have a lot of theories about that. Let me hear yours. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Just to give you an idea of where things are with the Air Force right now. Uh, uh, By the way, eight open lines. So you're welcome to comment on this. If you're at all interested, we'll be able to get you right on. The Air Force Secretary, Frank Kendall said the branch is likely to experience a 10% shortfall in recruiting in 2023. That's no joke, 10%. The BMI criteria changes, um, they would allow up to 100 more recruits 
to join the Air Force each month. So the body composition assessment, which I'm told is also called the tape test in the military, it varies for each branch with some more strict than others. I don't know that we, I certainly, look, it's one thing if you're flying an airplane, right? I don't know that we want fat Navy SEALs or Green Berets or Army Rangers, right? It doesn't go with the whole image if you're seeing a guy that looks like Butterbean on these missions to rescue, uh, you know, to rescue hostages or kill Osama bin Laden. And it does no good if you see a Homer Simpson uh, reject from the live action version of The Simpsons now being the, the lead Green Beret that's in charge of these covert missions. So this tape test varies for each branch. And it uses a tape measure to compare height to circumference measurements around the hips to determine overall body fat. One out of every three adults right now, aged 17 to 24, which is the prime recruiting demographic that the Air Force looks to, is too overweight to enlist in the military, according to the CDC. I want you to think about that. One out of every three adults, and I'm not sure if this is under the existing criteria or in the the criteria that they're changing this to, but one out of three adults aged 17 to 24 is too overweight to enlist in the military. Only three out of four individuals are physically active enough to handle the rigorous training requirements of boot camps across the military. Since 2018, 71% of adults in this country would not be eligible to join the military due to their weight, level of education, and or criminal record. So we are gradually becoming a nation of people that can't even qualify to serve in our own military if we wanted to. But based on some of these numbers... Not enough of us want to. 800-848-9222. According to retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, he told the CDC the military has experienced incre- has experienced increasing difficulty in recruiting soldiers as a result of physical inactivity, obesity, and malnutrition among our nation's youth. Not addressing these issues now will impact our nation's national, our future national security. Uh, I think this should be alarming to everybody. The Department of Defense spends nearly $1.5 billion per year battling obesity-related health care costs of active and former service members and their families, including the resources needed to replace military personnel being removed from service due to their weight. Along with the staggering health care costs, it costs the Department of Defense $103 million a year, by the way, for the 658,000 uh, cumulative days lost due to troops being overweight. So I think a lot of us knew that the obesity problem in this country was becoming a public health crisis. I think a lot of us knew about the costs involved in our obesity epidemic in this country. 
But I, I don't know if I, and tell me if you did, I don't know if I had a full appreciation of what a serious national security issue this has become. But if you're listening to these numbers, both the dollars and cents and the pure stats, this is cause for concern. So you can be a little fatter and be an airman. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Sally Hodel, an Elvis historian, longtime Elvis fan, is going to join me in about 15 minutes. She has done an exhaustive look at what may have killed Elvis Presley. And it's something beyond drugs. It's something beyond heart disease. It has to do with genetics. And it actually might have played a role in his daughter, Lisa Marie's untimely passing as well. We're going to get into it. I'm looking forward to that uh, very much. Next hour, Richard Hoagland is going to be here. Richard Hoagland has been a consultant for NASA. He's been a scientific advisor for CBS News and Walter Cronkite. He has been uh, a best-selling author, and he hosts a very popular podcast. You want to know what the name of it is? I'm not joking. The name of the podcast is... The Other Side of Midnight. He has a podcast, the same name as our show, and in fairness to him, he was actually first. Uh, So I think we, I believe unintentionally, stole it from him. However, I'm thrilled to have him on the show. He's something of a legend when it comes to science writers and uh, people that explore various different aspects of space and all sorts of other things. Then, third hour of the program... We're going to talk with Ben Burgess, back by popular demand. Ben Burgess has been great when he's been on this program before. Uh, usually we end up talking about cancel culture and wokeness, and he's a, a, a and this is not me calling him a name, this is how he describes himself. He is a self-described leftist that thinks the left has gone too far in canceling people, but that's not what we're going to talk about. He wrote a fascinating column recently about... We've got the wrong president being arrested, the wrong former president. It shouldn't be Donald Trump. There's another president that's sitting, enjoying life right now, who is almost certainly guilty of serious war crimes. Who's indicting George W. Bush? We're going to get into that and a whole lot more. But first, uh, let me take your c- a couple of calls or as many as we can get into in the next uh, 15 minutes. 800-848-9222-1234-5. Six open lines. Let me begin with Liz in Manhattan. Hello, Liz. Uh, my mother was a type 1 diabetic. And before insulin, she had to be on this diet that you're describing, the Air Force diet. And... Uh, that was the only way she lived. But I didn't describe the diet. Grandfather got her on insulin when he was Secretary of State. So, um, you get the sense that Liz really enjoys mentioning her grandfather being Secretary that, of State um, and a Supreme Court no, Justice. Uh, the best diet. I just did an hour of exercise. I'm 80. And, uh, uh, that's the only way to stay not depressed and focused also. Well, Liz, that's a great uh, That's great that you mentioned that. I had no idea that your grandfather was uh, Secretary of State, nor a Supreme Court uh, Justice. I'm glad you mentioned that. 
But um, uh, it's certainly true that exercise is a great way to not only stay physically fit, but in shape as well. Tony is in Queens. Oh, Tony hung up. All right. If anybody else cares to comment on this, be my guest. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I want to be very clear. I don't necessarily have any solutions. The only thing I'm sort of doing is venting my broader concern about this. I mean, maybe one of the one of these solutions is not just increased physical activity, as you heard Liz mentioned there, but maybe some of these solutions include um, broader use of these weight loss drugs that we've been talking about. Uh, I was talking to someone yesterday, they're a doctor, and they said they've seen nothing as effective as this new family of weight loss drugs. So I know we we did a couple of segments on that. We may revisit that in the future, but uh, I find this to be uh, pretty alarming from a national security standpoint as well as a public health standpoint. And, you know, uh, maybe maybe other folks don't care, but uh, I think the fact that we're looking at lowering the physical requirements for jobs that were once considered pretty elite police officers members of the military. I don't think that's a good thing at all. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. All right. Uh, you find us on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, very pleased to be over 9,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, you know what? It's not so much that number because it's not that 9,000 is so great. But I began the day when I first looked at Twitter at 8,999 Twitter followers. I can't tell you, as someone that's easily triggered by a lot of compulsive things related to numbers, I hated looking at that number, 8,999. So I posted that number on my Twitter, and I said, if anyone has a friend, get them to follow me. And sure enough, about 20 people did. So uh, now I am over that uh, 8,999 number. It's not as nice as being as a nice even number, but I guess you can never really guarantee that you're staying at uh, at an even number uh, like that. But that's where we are. We're on Twitter at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. A lot going on at Twitter, including, uh, so, so far it looks like uh, since Elon Musk took, t- took over, they have laid off... Um, 75% of the staff, um, he was in the midst of, and I'm not sure what he was doing this for, if it was a prank or uh, to do, pull off, a, to do a point, but he, in the headquarters of the uh, Twitter headquarters, he removed the W from Twitter's name so that it sounds like a, a crass term for a w- woman's breasts. So I'm not exactly sure why he did that. He's also um, stopping people from sharing Substack uh, articles on Twitter. So, you know what happened is Matt Taibbi, who is one of Elon Musk's favorite journalists, one of my favorite journalists, one of the people that Elon Musk actually chose to write the Twitter files, Matt Taibbi is actually, he left Twitter because he feels that Substack is more important to having people read his work. So I thought that was interesting that um, Elon Musk, I think he's done a lot of good things at Twitter, but he's done a lot of bizarre things at Twitter so far. But I'm rooting for him to succeed, not only with Twitter, but with um, with SpaceX as well. All right. 
We're going to talk with Sally Hodell about Elvis in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and I go, can't go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoe. Well, you can do anything but take me over my blue suede shoe. Well, you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place. Well, do anything that you want to do, but not, uh, honey, lay off them shoes and don't you step on my blue suede shoe. The great Elvis well, Presley. If you listen to his volume of songs or, or look at even some of the incredible films, that he produced over the years. A couple of things are astounding. One, the variety of music that he was able to master. And, it, I mean, he's been called the king of, of rock and roll, and I think that's a title that he certainly deserves. But you could also very much, very easily call him the king of white gospel music. You could call him uh, the... Um, uh, you could call him the... Uh, predecessor in some respects to the works of uh, the crooning of people like Michael Bublé, believe it or not. He mastered so many different styles of music and produced so many great, incredible songs, which is amazing if he had lived to be 87. But think about the fact that the man passed away when he was 42 years old. In the prime of his life. And initially it was reported that Elvis had passed away due to a heart attack. And then uh, some issues came out uh, that uh, it looked like it was maybe not a result of a heart attack, but it might have had something to do with drug use. Well, Sally Hodell is a lifelong Elvis fan and an Elvis historian who has explored Elvis's life, his death. And his health throughout that life. And uh, she's written a couple of books about it, including Destined to Die Young. Sally Hodell, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, uh, Sally, what prompted your interest in Elvis, both as a fan and a researcher? Sure. Well, I am a lifelong fan. Like you said, I also have a journalism background. So this really was a coming together for me of, you know, it was a passion project, professional passion project for sure. And as a fan who always read all the books and left a lot of them with more questions than answers, you know, the first book really did grow out of a, a, you know, I wonder if moment. (laughs) I wonder if this is why uh, he passes in the same way as his mother. And uh, the research started and it really was a brain candy project in the beginning. And then it was, you know, 10 trips to Tupelo and Memphis and meeting so many people who knew Elvis and interviewing them. 
And uh, it was just amazing the way it all pieced together. And it's been it's been an incredibly rewarding project. So I, I think a lot of people uh, believe the conventional narrative that Elvis Presley passed away because of prescription uh, medication. Is that accurate? Did Elvis pass away due to drug use? I, I disagree with that um, wholeheartedly. And, you know, my research kind of started off with uh, knowing that his mother dies at 46. Elvis passes at 42. They both pass after a four-year period of degenerative health. And as a fan, you know, I always thought there has to be something to that because Gladys, his mother, does not take the medication. She doesn't have the pressure of being a rock and roll star. There was a lot of pressure on Elvis from a lot of people, as you can imagine, with his fame. Um, And she didn't have that, yet they pass in a similar way. And, uh, you know, I was reconnected with some of my old books I had from when I was a kid, and I picked one up a few years ago, kind of started this project and reread it. And in that book, it mentioned that his maternal grandparents, Gladys's parents, were first cousins. So that was kind of that what if moment, like what if that, you know, close relation marriage created all these health issues for Elvis and his mother. And as I delved into the family tree, it wasn't just Gladys who dies at 46. She has a brother who dies at 58. She has a brother who dies at 49. She has another brother who dies at 46, all heart, lung, liver related issues. So really, you know, when it gets to Elvis, it stops being a coincidence. There is just a lot of young heart related deaths. In that family tree. Uh, so what sort of uh, degen- of genetic-related heart issues or other health issues would Elvis, his mother, and their other relatives have suffered from if, uh, as you say, his grandparents were first cousins? Right. Well, the one thing we know for sure, because we know from his autopsy that he was a carrier for something called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And what that means, it either you know creates issues with your liver or your or your lungs, depending on whether or not you inherit one bad gene or two. So Gladys, you know, she dies from what they thought was hepatitis and cirrhosis, but even her doctor at the time said, I can't quite figure this out. It's not typical hepatitis. Um, so she most likely suffered from the liver portion of that disease. Her mother before her, uh, they always thought she passed of tuberculosis. That was kind of the story that was passed down. Yet she took to her bed and lived for 30 years, you know, and at that time, a life expectancy with tuberculosis at most was five years. So most likely she had the lung portion of that disease. And we see that disease, you know, affect Elvis as well. But by the time he passes in 1977, Elvis has disease or disorder in nine of the 11 systems of the body. Like you said, long written, usually written off as you know, the end result of the prescription medication problem, and it absolutely did become a problem. The book does not sugarcoat that. Uh, But my research proves that at least five of those were present prior to fame, prior to the medication, you know, and they they were most likely there since birth. Wow. And uh, do we, was Elvis aware that he had health, health issues throughout his life? Absolutely. You know, he has three major hospital stays, and with each one, he, he leaves knowing that there's more wrong with him than what he went in for. Mm. And there there are some detox issues with each of those hospital stays as well, but they also know that his liver is not working right, that he has this colon problem, that he really you know requires surgery and he refuses that surgery. And that colon problem is definitely from birth. It's on record, you know, that he had issues with that from the time he was very young. Um, so he leaves those hospital stays knowing there's more wrong with him than right. And, of course, Dr. Nick, you know, Definitely, again, crosses that line between friend and physician. Elvis is overprescribed at times, but his main physician, Dr. Nick, is always running tests, always trying to figure out what's wrong with him. And, of course, Elvis, in charge of all these people, you know, and he has, he's notorious for having the Memphis Mafia around him all the time. 
He does not want to appear weak. He is their boss. He's Elvis Presley. And it's the 1970s, and men didn't talk about health problems, you know, then like they might now. And a lot of this was kept quiet. Mm. Uh, no, that's uh, what what a, a shame. So um, how does the health issues that Gladys had and that Elvis had uh, compare to other people that are the progeny of folks that are first cousins? Well, it's it's this doubling of the gene pool, right? And a lot of these things are are X related. So with Elvis, you know, it's it's boys receive a, you know, the X chromosome from mom and the the Y chromosome from dad, where girls get the X from mom and the, another X from dad. So if they have a bad gene, it might be replaced, you know, by the other X. With a girl, has more likelihood of it being the bad gene being replaced. Where boys, you know, aren't as fortunate. So that's why you see the boys mm. have more young death and. Um, and Gladys's siblings, she's one of the unlucky females, you know, who inherits the the, the bad genes because she has three sisters who live longer, and it is more common for the girls to live longer and to, like I said, have a bad gene replaced, you know, by a good gene. So um, it's a it's a lot of the alpha one stuff. It's the heart related stuff, and I most likely the colon problems too. It's 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 that doubling of the gene pool. It just doubles your chances for those bad genes to not be replaced by good genes when you have that close relation marriage. Why has no other physician or researcher or even journalist until now discovered the same thing that you discovered? Obviously, I know that you put a lot of work into this, but I'm sure there was a lot of work uh, to be looked into and a lot of people that had similar interest over this since 1977. Yeah, it was a ton of research. And I think a lot of it is that Elvis has just been, you know, bogged down in pop culture ideas that he took too much medication. Typical rock and roll star, right? And he kind of gets bogged down in that kind of narrative. So when we, you know, look at these flaws, we're able to restore his humanity a bit because I think, you know, like you said, he's still 45 years after his death as popular as ever in many respects and certainly still as recognizable by his first name as an image alone, certainly a slice of Americana. So I think his humanity, you know, his humanity gets chipped away at a little bit and then and he's so perfect looking on the outside. You don't want to think that he's flawed on the inside. You know, there's a lot of things that keep this stuff hidden or maybe not explored. And and when you read the Elvis books, you know, there'll be a little blurb about his health issues in each one, which isn't a lot. But when you put it all together and all these different people, you know, this person knows that this is wrong with him or this other person knows that that's wrong with him. And you put it all together and it ends up being quite a bit. Like I said, disease or disorder in nine of the 11 systems of the body. Wow. How does that get ignored for this long? Oh, we're talking with it's- Sally Hodel. Uh, her book is Destined to Die Young. If you want to check it out or order a copy, you can go to ElvisAuthor.com. That's ElvisAuthor.com. Sally, do you believe that maybe part of the reason he was so dependent upon prescription drugs and and sought them out from Dr. Nick and possibly others was because he was in such perpetual pain because of these health issues? Absolutely. I think after 75 for sure and maybe a little sooner, there's no way he could have been Elvis Presley without it because his adrenal glands were failing. So, you know, without getting kind of propped up by the medication, he would not have been able to tour like he did. And there was a number of other, he had an immune system issue, you know, that really wasn't fully understood at that time. Uh, So he was, he had, his body had a hard time fighting infection. So it was very difficult to be Elvis Presley through all these ailments. And I think after a certain point, he couldn't have been Elvis Presley without the medication. Mm. And unfortunately he knew that too. And uh, as far as, as you can tell, had he not, taken all these prescription drugs, he probably would have died at this very young age anyway. 
I think so. When you look at the family tree, you know, even his father dies at 63 of heart failure and his mother dies at 46. He has these uncles who all die in their 40s. Um, it really is not a coincidence when it gets to Elvis, even though he obviously um, doesn't make the best lifestyle choices, right? It does help us understand his choices, though, because we also have to remember that Elvis was so poor, and he really did pull his whole family out of poverty, and he considers himself to be that provider. So that is why he turns to the medication, and it's why he keeps turning to the medication, because he feels that all these people rely on him. He has to keep being Elvis Presley. Um, and as far as you can tell, um, was Lisa Marie a, a victim of the same genes when it came to her premature death? Sure. Well, you know, the, we're still waiting for the autopsy results on that. And I had seen her in, in January when she was there to celebrate Elvis's birthday. And then I was there two weeks later for her memorial, you know, which was incredibly sad. Um Whatever the autopsy shows, we do have to remember that there is a tremendous amount of young heart-related death in that family. And I think, you know, her family tree is half of Elvis's family tree, and that had to play a, a role for sure. Mm, uh, very interesting. Hey, what did you think of the movie? I was just curious. Um, you know, I, I'm into the real thing. So <laughs> um, it was entertaining, and I think that it has sparked a lot of interest in Elvis again, which I think is really important. And if watching that film you know, and that dramatic representation of Elvis Presley leads a new fan to get on YouTube and watch Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1956, then I think that's a great thing. And as, as far as uh, you're aware so far, what's been the reaction to your claims and your thesis from the medical community and other people that have looked into this? Yeah, it's been really positive. You know, it's been a really uh, incredible experience because I've had such positive reaction, especially from Elvis fans and especially, you know, from the medical community, like you said, and there'll be, a, you know, I hear a lot from Elvis fans who are nurses or doctors. And I'm like, I, I knew there was something to this, you know, and I read the book and I, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and when you know how it is, when you, when you do something like this, it's, it's always possible that the 10 people you're related to are the only ones who read it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm on my fourth printing now and it's just, it's resonated. I think it helps. It, it helps Elvis's story make sense. It just does. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Well, uh, I, uh, I think the work that you've done here is terrific, gives people a lot of different things to think about. And again, uh, the book is uh, available at ElvisAuthor.com. And if people want to check it out, it's called Destined to Die Young. Uh, and had Lisa Marie commented on any of your claims in this book before she passed away? No, I have not um, talked to her. I never, I didn't have an opportunity to speak to her before her passing. Um, you know, I, Elvis's nurses, both his nurses were huge resources for this book. Um, and of course, I've interviewed probably 20 people who knew Elvis. And there was one Memphis Mafia member in particular who said to me, you know, I, I wish I had known all of this. You, you also, you, you know, yeah, no, I can imagine you. You also have another book about Ron Strauss, who was Elvis's yeah. pilot called Destined to Fly. I don't know much uh, about uh, Ron Strauss at all. Uh, what did you focus on when it came to that book? Well, Ron Strauss has an incredible life story in addition to flying Elvis, but he um, served in the Air Force 
for 12 years and flew 3,400 hours during Vietnam. He left the Air Force to become a, a pilot because he was a flight engineer in the, in the Air Force and uh, became a pilot. He was hijacked um, in Nicaragua at one point, had to fly with a gun to his head from Nicaragua to Cuba. And, and then he became Elvis Presley's pilot, too. So there's a little bit of, you know, John Wayne and Ronald <laughs> Reagan and Elvis Presley. And it's just a it truly is a slice of Americana. And he, like Elvis, you know, he's from Fonda, Iowa, small town. Mm-hmm grew up in a small town and no one expected him to be the most successful person to emerge from that small town and uh, very much like Elvis. I mean, no one thought that Elvis Presley was going to emerge from Tupelo to become the most famous person sure. to ever live. Absolutely. All right. Um, it's a real treat to talk with you, Sally. I hope we can stay in touch and do this again in the future. I hope so. Thanks. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Sally Hodel. Uh, check out both books at ElvisAuthor.com. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. That is Elvis Presley singing A Little Less Conversation, a remixed version, I believe remixed by the Audio Bullies, uh, although don't quote me on that. Uh, we will put uh, all of our playlists available on our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. You want to comment on uh, anything we're talking about? You can do so at 800 848 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Loretta in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. We want Elvis. We want Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> He's terrific, isn't he? I fell in love with him when I was 11 in 1956. Well, I, I, you, you weren't the only one. I could see why. Now, you didn't ever get in the habit of throwing any of your undergarments on stage like I've seen in a lot of the archival videos, have you? If I only had the chance, (laughs) (laughs) it was reported uh, that Mary Tyler Moore was the only one who said no to the king because he diddled every uh, leading lady he had, except Mary Tyler Moore. Well, uh, that is uh, that is very, very interesting. I I didn't know that there's actually a wonderful uh, documentary film about Dolores Hart. Are you familiar with Dolores Hart? That's right. Uh, she was she starred with Elvis in Loving You, and then she made a lot of other uh, great films, including Where the Boys Are. And then she uh, left to become left Hollywood at the height of her career in order yeah. to become a nun. Thanks, Loretta. She, yeah, there's actually a great documentary 
the title is called God is the Bigger Elvis. It's a short documentary, only 37 minutes. It was on HBO, so it's probably still on HBO On Demand if you're interested in it. Um, did you say something? We, oh, okay. I heard something in my ear. All right. 800 How are you, uh, Matt Blaze? I'll say hello to you since now we people know that you're I'm here. very good. Good. How are you? Good. Why are you laughing when I say that? Because <laughs> you looked at me like... No, because I, I thought like, it sounded like you turned your mic on. Oh, um, no. Okay. But, Not at all. Well, good. All right. Well, you certainly will. I'm just listening to you tell Elvis stories. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's it. Right. Well, anyway, so the documentary is called God is the Bigger Elvis. Hey, speaking of um, weight and weight-related issues, which we touched upon at the top of the show, let me mention this. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll save that for next hour. I'll, I'll let. I'll, I'll, I don't want to do too much stuff related to weight in one hour. I'll, I'll do that next hour. Now. One of the issues that I am having, quite frankly, is we are going, we are diving headfirst into communion season. And there are communions coming up and communions and communions. And look, when you know a lot of people, you tend to get invited to a lot of communions. And when they're all around this time of year, it almost becomes, for some of us, uh, a weekly event, which is great. It's a great communions are a fun party. Uh, there's not a lot of pressure to dance at a communion. A lot of times it's just a house party. It's it's a fun party. It's kind of informal, a little bit more flexibility in terms of when you could show up. I love a good communion party. You got God in there. You don't have to deal with, uh, you know, the different in-laws trying to see how, how they're going to mesh. There's not all this pressure to take photos at certain times and do this and do that. Unlike weddings, which always take place in an inconvenient location, communions are always almost, they're almost always convenient. They're never in, you know, if someone lives in Brooklyn, there's never a communion in Connecticut, right? It's always relatively convenient for everybody that has to go. So anyway, my goddaughter, Penelope, who is the daughter of one of my closest friends, Anthony, she is having her communion uh, coming up in, in May, I think the first weekend in May. Turns out the um, that same day we received an invitation for a communion that my two cousins are having. You see, I have uh, three first cousins, only three, and I'm very lucky to have these three. We're, we're very close, but I don't get to see them th- that often. They all live in, in Pennsylvania. And I saw them over the Easter holiday, which was nice, but I don't get to see them that often. And whenever I get invited to a family function, I always try to go. Whenever we have a family function, they always make the trip and try to go. And so uh, my cousin Joanne has a little girl, uh, baby Madeline, not baby anymore, but Maddie. And uh, my cousin Gina has a girl around the same age, Hazel. So they are going through a lot of different things together. They're in the same grade. They're going through religious instruction, and so their communion party is the same day as my goddaughter, Penelope. So now what do you do? Because normally you would think if it's a one-on-one comparison, right, if it's just family member versus goddaughter, you got to go with goddaughter, right? If it's just if it's friend versus goddaughter, goddaughter wins hands down. But family member, I don't know, bumps that person up a little bit. Then... You're talking two family members 
the progeny of two-thirds of my first cousin. Um, that is a much tougher decision. So what do you do if you're in that situation? Do you go to your goddaughter, who's not technically a blood relation, or do you go to your two cousins who are having that party the same day? What do you do, Matt Plays, in that instance? I say you got to go to the cousins. Cousins, why? Because there's two. There's two. And the whole family is That's going two. to be there. That's right. That's right. And That's if you right. don't show up, they're going to be like, where's Frank? Right. And I would be the only one of my siblings in all likelihood not to show up. Right. right? And plus, they'd want to see Carmine. Yeah. Well, they mean, they just saw him last week. But the rest of the family that's yeah. there, not that's just right. your siblings. Yeah. Um, no, I'm saying I was just with all these same cousins on Good Friday and the, the Easter holiday. So, I mean, oh, it's not as if they haven't seen him right, since right. he was born. But your point's well taken. And what about you, Kenneth? you have a vote on this? Yeah, you got to choose the cousin. You cousins, gotta, both gotta of go, you say Got to go with the family, got to. All right, well, so I thought about this a great deal, and um, I arrived at a different conclusion than the one that you guys did. So when I saw both Joanne and Gina on Friday, now, you got to understand, Joanne and Gina are both pretty cool. Um, and Joanne is very tough, but she's very cool. Joanne is the kind of person she... She loses her mobile phone probably three times a month, uh, because and that's not an exaggeration. She will just it's a it's a matter of course. Her phone may end up in a random taxi cab and a night out or whatever. Um, if you're ever on her bad side, there is a good chance that um, she will scream at you to such a point where you wish she would just cut your throat. I mean, she has a razor-sharp tongue when need be. But she'll she's she's not just physically tough, she's mentally tough. She will be out partying till 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and then she will be at the gym at 6 o'clock in the morning the next day working out, and then baking cookies for her kids' um, school birthday parties, whatever they do, by... 8 a.m. and then taking the kids to school. So she's really, really tough. So I spoke with both of them. Ultimately, I thought um, I would have to, I had to go with my uh, with my goddaughter, right? So I spoke with both of them the other day. And both of them, they both gave me a little bit of a hard time, but they were they seemed pretty cool about it and they both basically said well you know i understand we're not as important as penelope and um and i said well you know yeah you you're not her parents had the wisdom to choose me as the godfather of their child had you asked me to be the godfather to one of your children now gina's got three children i could have been asked to be godfather to one joanne's got two i could have been asked to be godfather of one. And instead, you know how many godparents, you know how many godchildren I have that are in that family? Uh, zero. So I feel like I should have, I should reward Penelope. I was at her baptism, got her a crucifix, which I'm hoping her parents will, uh, will make them wear, will, will make her wear for this, uh, for this particular ceremony. Come to think about it, Penelope's godmother, I think, still owes me $100 for that crucifix. Um, what was that? I guess that was about seven years ago. With interest, that could be a lot of money given inflation right now. I'm going to talk to her about it. Well, I probably won't, but hopefully she'll hear about it from somebody um, that's listening to this broadcast and then say, hey, you know, Christina, 
do you owe Frank a hundred dollars from that crucifix that you guys bought Penelope when she was a baby? But please, if I'm worried about a hundred dollars, you have no idea the amount of money I'm wasting on a regular basis. So I am going to go to uh, Penelope's communion. Uh, I reiterated that Anthony called me yesterday to discuss a couple of other events that we're working on together. And uh, he said, uh, you're coming to Penelope's communion, right? And I had already RSVP'd, I believe. And I said, yes, I'm missing my two cousins' uh, communion for that, I believe. And she's, and I looked at the timing to see if there was any way that I could do both. And unfortunately, uh, not. One is in Westchester, one is in Pennsylvania, and they're at about the same time. So it is, uh, it is what it is. I hope I'm making the right decision, and uh, I hope everybody understands. And, you know, you send a gift. You send a gift. Michael is in Brooklyn. Hello, Michael. Yeah, Frank, it's a no-brainer. You you don't want to go, number one, you don't want to go to Pennsylvania. Number two, um, it, you're the, you know, you're the godfather of one of your best friends, you know, daughters. You have to go to that. Like cousins you can see any time. Yeah, uh, uh, so that's an excellent that's point. My, excellent point. So I don't think you would feel any regrets about that. Plus, you know, you get to hang out with your friend. You can send, like you said, a card, gift, whatever, and say, you know, I'm too busy. And the way to handle that normally, well, you're a big celebrity, would be um, I'm working and I can't make it. That's usually what I do. Yeah, well, obviously I can't do that because the whole world knows my hours, Michael. I can't, I can't do that. But uh, they seemed cool, uh, and I like that. My, hey, what's it, what do you think is an appropriate gift to send in in, in honor in light of me not attending in person? What's an appropriate gift? Uh see, back in the day, it's got to be it's got to be a check. It's got to be money, right? And you know? and how much you think? Uh, I would say, you know. Right now, at this point, yeah. Well, that's really when what, that's the time we're dealing with here. Five hundred, three hundred. Wait, wait, wait. How, wait. Repeat that number. Between five hundred and three hundred. Oh, uh, that is a lot more than I was thinking, uh, Michael. But uh, that's that's quite a that that's almost wedding territory. You think that's an appropriate amount of money to give for a communion gift? Um, for. Uh, I would I would say for a close personal friend, yes. For a cousin that you never see in Pennsylvania, maybe. Well, no, I don't uh-huh. never see them. I mean, I, I we see each other. We were just together at Easter, you know, and I was before that. I saw them at uh, Christmas Eve, and I saw at least one of them on New Year's Eve. Eve. Yeah, I see. That's debatable, depending on you know how much you know. Some- you know what I'll do? Thank you, Michael. I don't know about this three to five hundred dollars. But maybe I will send $100 along with a, a, a Xerox copy of my current checking account balance so they see what a high percentage of my current checking account balance $100 is right now. So um, 300 He blew my mind with that number. 500 Hey, until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
I have really never cared for The Little Mermaid. I have nothing against The Little Mermaid. I never spent much time thinking about The Little Mermaid, but it was never really my thing. I never enjoyed it. I guess it's more of a girl's thing. I I was never into any of these Disney princess animated films, really. There are some that I liked more as an adult, but as a child, I I didn't care for any of these, really. I I didn't love the stories. I thought they were a little corny. Uh, It was just not never my thing. Now... My mom, she's always felt differently. My wife has always felt differently. She loves The Little Mermaid and uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, all that stuff. Big fan. Well, now there is a live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. So you, um, I'm sure, have been familiar with some of these other live-action films. They did a live-action remake of The Lion King. They did a live-action remake of Aladdin. They did a live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. And some of them are very good. Uh, I have seen some of them, and they're visually stunning. And you really wonder, did they really need to remake that? It's almost, in some cases, a shot-for-shot remake of the original, only with actors instead of with animation. Why not, right? And if you look at the numbers at the box office that the new Super Mario Brothers movie did, I think this trend is only going to continue. If you want to know what makes money in Hollywood, look at Avatar, look at the last 11 Star Wars films, its sequels, its remakes, its sequels, its remakes, its adaptations. That's it. I guess it makes sense when you think about it is there's already a built-in brand identity for Super Mario or Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever the case may be. And those fans are already out there and it's a commercially proven genre for the Avengers 9.0. There's enough demonstration that uh, there's enough proof of concept that people are willing to pay money for that kind of thing. But so I don't care is really kind of where I'm at on this. But there is something about this Little Mermaid that it didn't necessarily sit well with me. And I'm trying to figure out if I'm making too much of this. Initially, a... um, Well, I'll save that story. But the composer for Disney's live-action Little Mermaid remake recently confirmed that some of the classic songs written for the 1989 animated classic have had some lyrics changed to promote consent. Composer Alan Menken told Vanity Fair in a recent interview that some of the original's famous songs, including Kiss the Girl, which I actually remember, I I think I only saw this film once, in theaters, although maybe when my brothers were young, maybe I saw it once or, or and sister, when they were young, maybe I saw it once or twice when they were kids. But I don't really remember watching it with them. But I definitely saw this in theaters. My mom was all about seeing it, and, and she took me to see it. I think I got her to take me to see Manhattan Murder Mystery or a Woody Allen movie in exchange for going along to The Little Mermaid with her. But... Uh, there's this song, Kiss the Girl, and it's sung, if I remember correctly, and I, again, I haven't seen this in decades, sung by that little that little crab, Sebastian. 
you they've received updated lyrics so that it's clear to viewers that Prince Eric, I can't even believe that I'm saying this, that Prince Eric would never force himself on Ariel. Another song in this live-action remake of The Little Mermaid, Poor Unfortunate Souls, sung by the villain, Ursula, has had its lyrics updated because some of the lines might make young girls somehow feel that they shouldn't speak out of turn. I want you to think about that one, that we're taking a song sung by a villain who's supposed to be evil, and we're changing the lyrics to make them more politically correct. Isn't that the strangest thing in the world? We clearly know that the formula for The Little Mermaid works. People want to see it. Parents want to take their children. The music works. The story works. Animation worked. So why change it? This reminds me, remember when they tried to update uh, Baby It's Cold Outside? What problem is really solved by updating the lyrics to Kiss the Girl or Poor Unfortunate Souls? I mean, we're not talking about going as far back in time as Mark Twain or Willy Wonka even. We're going back in time to the late 80s. Were there really a whole bunch of obstreperous young men that heard this song in theaters and ran out and kissed girls without their consent? I suspect not. So the film stars Halle Berry as the title character. Oh, that was another thing that a friend of mine had an issue with. I didn't have an issue with it. But she's a friend uh, and a mom of two. And she saw the trailer for the new Little Mermaid film. And she didn't appreciate the fact that the Little Mermaid was no longer white. And I said, well, who cares? And uh, Halle Berry's a great actress. And she said, yeah, but it's an established character that they're changing just for, I forget what she said, but basically just for political correctness. And I get it, but it's a story about a mermaid. I think we're taking it a little seriously. And that's I'm trying not to make too big a thing of this, but I just wonder if this is just, at what point does this stop? At what point do they leave well enough alone? Um, Clar- uh, the lyrics to the original tunes chorus read, Yes, you want her. Look at her. You know you do. Possibly she wants you to. There's one way to ask her. It don't take a word, not a single word. Go on and kiss the girl. The composer then mentioned the changes to Ursula's most famous number. He said, we have some revisions in Poor Unfortunate Souls regarding lines that might make young girls somehow feel that they shouldn't speak out of turn. In the original song, The Sea Witch Sings, the men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yet on land, it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word. And after all, dear... What is Idle Babble for? The original songs were composed by Mencken along with the late Howard Ashman. Mencken and Hamilton creator Linwin manuel Miranda, they've also penned several new original songs. 
for the upcoming live-action remake. I think this is so silly. I think this is so such a needless controversy. Uh, 800-848-9222, if you care to comment. That's 800-848-9222. Was there anything wrong with these original lyrics that needed changing? I don't think there was. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Thank you. There was nothing wrong with the original lyrics. I was in animation school at the time that the 1989 version of The Little Mermaid came out. But like all things, comic books, movies, animated, live action in theater, whatever, maybe there must be, maybe there should be a disclaimer in front of it. Because as all sane people know, regardless of whether it's a movie, a comic book, a theatrical presentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, these are creative works of fiction, not real life. But for entertainment purposes. Yeah. What do you think the audience is for these changes? Now, clearly, Disney, they're a big corporation. They wouldn't do this unless they thought now this. Now they are. Now they are. Now right. they are. Disney's woke. You know, no, I understand. But so what's, what's, the, what's the value to them in being woke? What do they gain by this? It fills their cash registers. If I were Mencken, I'd be offended that they would change his original lyrics. I'd sue them for changing his original lyrics if they didn't tell them. Um, well, I think he's actually participating in the in the change, and I'm sure he's being paid handsomely for it. Uh, thank you, Mark. I'd love also to hear from someone that disagrees on this. If you if you think this is a good thing that they're changing the lyrics, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Give me a call and let me know because I think it's just. I mean, it's it's one of those things, one of the many things in life where I think it's just a solution in search of a problem. And I, I don't see what good this does anybody. And I understand the pressure that everybody has in this day and age to uh, cater to every possible lifestyle that there is. Okay. And... um Sometimes I think you just leave well enough alone. You know, I was somebody reached out to me yesterday and we were talking about the um the third party ticket that Node Labels is running. And I mentioned that, you know, it's probably going to be Joe Manchin and Larry Hogan. And they said, "Ah, I don't know about two white males." Well, you every president we've ever had has been a white male. Every vice president we've ever had, with the exception of one, has been a white male. So I don't think we should be discriminating against a ticket because people might be white or black or men. I I find that level of – I don't even like the term wokeness because uh, wokeness to me implies being awake. But I don't even like that level of needing to – recognize and think about catering to every single lifestyle, every single ethnic group, because I think it's just so, um, so sophomoric, honestly. And I think it leads to greater divisions. 
in all candor. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Uh, we, I, we we may talk to Richard Hoagland in a moment, although apparently there was some confusion about what time he wants to come on, and now apparently it might be too late for him, so uh, we'll see about getting him on. If not, we'll reschedule him for another time, and we'll have a lot of opportunity to um, uh, to chat about whatever we want. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When doves cry. Uh, so we were slated to talk with uh, Richard Hoagland, who is a former space science museum curator, former NASA consultant, and uh, was an advisor uh, to NASA in the time of the Apollo missions, was the science advisor to CBS News and to Walter Cronkite, and um, a best-selling author. The guy is as credentialed as, as anybody. And he also hosts a podcast called The Other Side of Midnight, which is which is pretty cool. But apparently there was some confusion about when he was supposed to come on. Now, I hate this. I, I, I don't know what time zone he's in, but I had thought he was in Pacific time. So apparently he's not. I guess he's in Mountain Time, which is not three hours ahead. He's two hours ahead. So he was expecting to come on an hour ago. Now, I'm not sure why he wouldn't have emailed me or called at the time that he thought he was supposed to be on. But um, what was his what was his deal? He didn't want to come on at this at this time. He said he had things to do and he couldn't come on right now. Well, so if he's in mountain time, it's 1220 in the morning there. Yes. (laughs) What do do we think he had to do? He's, He's a scientist. He must be. Studying science. Yeah, he might be in the lab. Oh, that is <laughs> he's, he's so... looking at the moon. I don't know. That's so annoying. I mean, I'm sure he does have things to do, but give us a break. I mean, especially because he's a radio guy or, you know, a, a talk show guy. He should have some understanding that these things happen with these time zones. Especially on the other side of midnight. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Exactly. Uh, so, oh, that's a bummer. Hey, a thank you to Miss M, who did work hard uh, trying to put together that uh, that interview for us. I believe she worked with uh, Richard Hoagland for a time, 
and uh, I uh, they I had to, tried to get in touch with him for a while, and initially he was receptive, and then he wasn't, and then Miss M reached out on our show's behalf, and she was able to get him to come on. I was really looking forward to this, and you know it, I don't care that we don't have a guest here. Uh, I think I I think three guests is a lot for one show anyway. I don't mind just having the extra opportunity to take calls and tell stories. But what bothers me is this. I spent hours this week in that I don't really have, quite frankly, in preparation for this interview. I'm reading all sorts of stuff. I'm listening to all sorts of podcasts. I, I am watching all sorts of videos. I'm coming up with questions to ask about. I'm spending just so much time that's now wasted. I mean, I guess maybe maybe he'll come on another day and I can use a lot of these same notes, but it's just so frustrating. I I can always book another guest or find something else to talk about. I just can't get I can't get my time back. And uh, that just that's a real kick in the gut when you spend so much time preparing for something and then uh, it doesn't come to fruition. I hate that. Uh, So Richard Hoagland is uh, in parts unknown and has too many things to do right now. So he is unable to be on with us. There you have it. 800-848-9222. Roger is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, well, may, hopefully you can file those notes away, just pack them away, and if you ever talk to them again, maybe just drag the notes back out. Yeah, I guess so, but, sure. So, well, so the reason I called was regarding uh, uh, things being canceled uh, for the sake of a few um, malcontents, shall we say. And and um, I, I've been thinking for a couple of years how it bothered me so much that the Girl Scout leadership – made the girls take down this tribute that they that they put together uh, concerning uh, the f- five uh, women as Supreme Court justices. And uh, our congresswoman, one congresswoman, our, our, our congresswoman up in Massachusetts put up a stink because it included Amy Coney, ba- Amy Coney Barrett. And, and right away, the Girl Scout leadership made, made the, uh, the girls take down that, whatever they however they posted it or whatever, I guess it was on the internet. And, and I thought to myself, you know, that, I was, I was pretty much uh, offended by that personally. I mean, uh, they make it a tribute about women. Yeah, I, I agree. And one congressman put stink. Yeah. Yeah. Roger, I agree with you. I, I had not been familiar with that story. Maybe I was at the time, but I, I don't remember it at the moment. And if yeah, that's the Ayanna case, Presley. Sorry, yeah, I, I'm familiar with Diana Presley and that doesn't surprise me. If that's the case, that's terrible. I don't think there's there's anything wrong with celebrating all the women that are on the Supreme Court. If you're the Girl Scouts, it would be great if people that are in the Girl Scouts now could aspire to be on the Supreme Court one day. I, I'm not trying to make too much of this Little Mermaid song situation, but uh, so uh, I, I don't think that's on the same level as what you're describing with the with the Girl Scouts. I'm sure the songs will be fine. I'm sure the film will be fine. It's just, why? Why? 800-848-9222. Oh, by the way, I guess I did say um, that all of the presidents were white men. One of them was half black. That's right. I had forgotten that. Thank you to my friend, Obi Murray. Uh, Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hey, Frank. You know, I think that because of the times 
Everything changes. Times don't wait. And old movies, if because of the times get offensive, you know, like Amos and Andy, you know, that type. But this is not that offensive like that. But it might, it is, uh, if society is dealing with the young kids on issues like that, and it's in a movie or a song, who the words were changed because of, you know, maybe it's offensive now, or maybe it just has to, um, you know, go somewhere else so the kids can, you know, respond right, but, to something a little more po- a positive. Go ahead. Tom, but... Is the song offensive? Is the song saying kiss no, the girls no. offensive? I, I don't think it is offensive. I, I understand, yeah. you know, um, for instance, there's... correctness. Yeah, yeah, but I remember there's a, a film that I really enjoy. It's called Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby. And there's a scene in that picture where uh, some of the performers who are white, they put on uh, blackface and they, they put on blackface. I completely understand why, if the, if they want to show that, that that might be offensive to some people and some audiences these days. I, I totally get that. I, I think this song, which has been enjoyed by children of all races for the last, and, and of all sexual persuasions of, of everybody, for the last uh, three and a half decades or more, yeah, no, three and a half decades, I, I don't think it was offensive. That's what I'm saying. I have no problem doing what you're saying, correcting things that yeah. over time are, have now become offensive, but I don't think this was offensive. Um, You know, and it's all a matter of opinion, but, you know, who knows? Uh, I don't, You know what I'm saying? It's political correctness. They just feel like it has to be changed so don't run into being a problem you know i wouldn't think it's, it's it's the problem either political correctness man you know and i hate when to see them change songs and movies for the work some songs and movies you can't change you know leave them alone you can't make them better yeah uh, i tend to agree uh thank you very much fugazi tom appreciate that so yesterday uh, there's a, a i read an email from a guy that uh, that said that, uh, and I said on the air that he that I, that he listens to this show and that he's called in occasionally. Well, I guess I just assumed that he called in. And the guy sends me an email. <laughs> it's very funny. The fellow's name is Jerry. Nice guy, and he basically said that uh, he's never called in. But he said, if I ever do call in, yeah, if I ever do call in. I want to be known as the original Jerry from wherever he's from. Just kidding about the original part. I don't want to steal from original Rick and get that right in the future. He seems pretty taken aback with with just Rick. I, I thought the same thing. I thought that was a very bizarre reaction that uh, Rick had the other day to not including original in his title. But I How look, dare you? I guess some people the, on Seinfeld, uh, the maestro was very frustrated when people didn't call him the maestro. So uh, that happens from time to time. It is what it is. All right. Uh, we're on Facebook as well. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. And uh, we have a Facebook group that uh, that you can join. I We haven't done one of these in a while, but I posted a, 
a Facebook video right before the show. You can see it at Facebook.com slash Morano fan, uh, basically promoting not only uh, tonight's show or this morning's show, but promoting this uh, event that I'm going to be volunteering at and uh, well, not volunteering. I'm attending next week. I'm being honored by the National Psoriasis Foundation, along with information on uh, on how to go to that. You know, uh, uh, remind me not to be honored by any of these organizations again, because it's just so much work and money, quite frankly, to be honored. So I I want people to show up because it'll be embarrassing if I'm speaking to an empty room. So I'm promoting it, trying to get people to go. I bought a table myself, and then I got uh, the radio station to buy a table. And then uh, I'm basically now in the middle of of all this with the radio station and the charity. I'm basically trying to – it's basically another job trying to get this all done. And I'm all for raising money for causes that I believe in. It's just an enormous amount of work. For the privilege of being honored. You know, I read this article yesterday, and I wasn't going to talk about it, but um, since Richard Hoagland's not here, we have the time. I read this article yesterday that my wife had sent to me, and she said, this is exactly what you need. And I read this article, and I loved it, because uh, it's from New York Magazine. It's written by Ella Quitner. Not only is it a great story— but it's written really beautifully. In fact, I put the writer on my list of people to reach out to. The headline of the article is, Life is Easier with a Fake Assistant. And this is how it begins. On a recent Thursday at 10 p.m., I ducked into a sold-out Michael Che show in the Meatpacking District and took a seat across from a woman who looked as though her date was whispering something offensive into her ear. I had learned of the show only the day before, at which point tickets were no longer available. I was lucky, though, to have my personal assistant, James, on the case. James Bernstein is a bookish NYU student whom I had hired earlier this year, reached out directly to the show's organizers, bypassing the generic waitlist webpage. He was able to lock down three tickets. James is useful like that. He's polite but persistent, fervent but never gruff. He told me once that he learned to be dogged from his mother, who was a line producer for 60 Minutes. If there's a secret email address or a VIP phone number out there, James Bernstein will unsheath it. He's not afraid to ask for what he needs. He's also 100% fake. So this writer based on a, a, a trend on TikTok, this writer created a personal assistant that doesn't exist, a fake personal assistant to respond to stuff on her behalf, to ask for stuff on his behalf. And she said, I had created James as an experiment to test a thesis tossed into my path by the TikTok algorithm that a fake personal assistant will get you farther. And essentially, she's found that it has. And then she interviews all of these other people that have used these fake personal assistants, and it's getting them all sorts of cool stuff. And it's also getting them, it's much easier to say no. Now, I answer every email, every text message, every Facebook message myself, and because it's me, 
I don't like to say no to people. So if people ask me for, hey, can you show up at this? Hey, can you do that? Hey, can you do a radio segment on this? I, I don't like to be the villain. And if I had a personal assistant, that person can do that. And apparently, based on all these people that are quoted in this article, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to it if you want to read it at uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Uh, that's uh, fake uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. I really was wondering after reading this if my wife was right that because this would solve a lot of my problems. This guy could say no to people. This guy could reach out to guests uh, on my behalf because I reach out to all the guests myself. Nobody else does that. And when we used to have a guest booker, there was someone, you know, there was someone else asking on my behalf. I feel like maybe it made it look like the show was a bigger deal that I have people that reach out for guests. And I'm wondering if it might be time for a fake personal assistant. Now, I was very tempted to pull the trigger on this yesterday, but I said, let me bring it up with the audience and see how they feel about it. And you know what I don't like, though, about it is two things. One, it's dishonest. It's dishonest to invent a person just so that you can be treated better. And, and and or save yourself the awkwardness of declining requests. Two, I'm so open with almost every aspect of my life with the audience that would I then have to invent fake uh, discussions with the personal assistant? I mean, I guess that's what Rush did with Bo Snurdly. There was no Bo Snurdly. That was a figment of Rush's imagination. And then for the years that James Golden was there, he became uh, Bo Snurdly because he was there. But Bo Snurdly was just a, a basically a narrative device to help Rush tell a story. You know, uh, Bo Snurdly was never held on, uh, never heard on the show until the last 10 or 11 years of the Rush Limbaugh show. At, at that point, Rush had been saying Mr. Snurdly for decades. So... Um, I feel like I'd have to invent fake conversations with the fake personal assistant, fake arguments with the fake personal assistant, come up with fake obligations that I have to go to for the fake personal assistant. And that it becomes a lot of deception when so much of what you do is just tell stories about your life. So I came across after reading this and after getting my wife's recommendation, because she's right, I do need someone like this. Um, I came across... Uh, initially very excited about the prospect of a fake personal assistant and then thinking that maybe it's just not my speed. So uh, read this article and then tell me what you think. Tell me if I should start a fake personal assistant. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You have an opinion on this, Matt Blaze? Yeah, I think you should create a fake personal assistant and then use ChatGBT to write all the responses. Well, um, okay. or questions, right, right. Well, that's uh, so then it won't you won't feel so bad. Yeah, well, because it's not you deceiving anybody. Chat GPT is writing everything for you. That that's true. That's not a bad thing. because when she first sent me the headline, I did think that that's what this was about. That it was about an AI personal assistant, not a just totally created personal assistant. I remember there was a Friends episode like this where um, 
I think it's Phoebe who masquerades as Joey's agent, and she does a better job getting him auditions than um, his actual agent was doing. All right. Um, uh, someone writes me via text message, you'll have to remember Richard Hoagland when denunciations roll around. You'll get him back. Oh, I don't want to denounce him because, look, the, it looks like the error was mine. He said 1120 in my time zone, and I thought I said 220 Eastern, and I thought um, he was in the Pacific time zone. So I guess the error is mine. Uh, but, you know. It, That's right, Frank. It is, so you're, you're not, not so, so smart. smart. Thank you. I hear that lady in my sleep. All right, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222 if you you want to comment on uh, this or anything else we're talking about. And uh, coming up next hour, we're going to talk to Ben Burgess, who luckily for us, I believe, is in the same time zone we are. So there's no confusion about what time zone is which. And he's going to be available to talk with us about a wide variety of subjects next uh, next hour. All right. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Eight open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. singing uh, I Kissed a Girl. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything you like. Uh, we're uh, taking your calls on anything and everything. Any subject is fair game. Uh, we, we, you're the beneficiary of the fact that uh, Richard Hoagland was unavailable to talk with us because now we got time to talk about whatever's on your mind. However, um, let me clarify this be uh, as uh, before Curtis starts to spin a very different narrative. I've lost track of um, what Curtis claims Carmine's weight is now. It's probably, I think when I saw him 10 months ago, he was claiming Carmine was 40 pounds or something. Or when he saw Carmine, um, when, when Carmine was born 16 and a half months ago, he claimed that uh, Carmine was, I think, a 12-pound baby or a 14-pound baby. And um, obviously he's not. And n- yesterday I took Carmine to the pediatrician. And he is 29 and a half pounds with no shoes on. So uh, that is the accurate weight for Carmine. 
he oh, I came home yesterday around I don't know, it was 6:15 in the morning. And I saw the lights on in our house, which uh meant that both Carmine and my wife Rachel were awake, which is never good because they're not supposed to be awake until until maybe 7. So I walk in and Carmine is happy as a clam. He's running around, greets me with a big smile. He's having a great time. And Rachel says he's been up since 5.30 in the morning. He slept through the night, but he's been up since 5.30. Now, we recently experimented with moving him to one nap. That didn't work out well. So we had to move him back to two. We bumped him back down to two two hours. We got him. Rele- he was relegated back to two hours. I mean, uh, two nap. So she is not pleased that he woke up so early. But that means everything kind of gets moved up. That means he starts napping a little early. And he was, I guess his, uh, he was up from his first nap around, I don't know, 10, 10.30. And so maybe 11 at the latest. So that means his second nap should have been around 2. But his pediatrician appointment was at 2. So he couldn't really nap. So he was in a great mood all day that I was with him. But I take him to the pediatrician's office, and he's usually very good at the doctors. He doesn't mind going. And we were just going for a checkup, you know, get a, get him weighed, get him measured, give him uh, give him a shot to make sure everything's good, and, uh, and ask whatever questions we have. And I take him in, and the poor boy is just so miserable. He was so cranky. He drank all the milk in his bottle. And was just so unhappy. There was no pleasing him. Uh, If I'm holding him, he wanted to be put down. If he's down, he wanted me to hold him. He's just so unhappy. And there's nothing wrong with him. And uh, basically, this was the scene at the pediatrician's office for 40 minutes. He's crying. The only benefit of this was that the pediatrician then didn't spend any time trying to make small talk with me about the hot-button issues of talk radio that he hears and then wants me to comment on. Yeah, I, I wonder if, if that happens to all the other talk show hosts, that people essentially want you to do their show, your show, for them whenever they run into you. All right, well, you know, uh, what do you think of X? Well, let me say the same thing that I said this morning which, you know, was, I spent a lot of time preparing, but I'll just repeat it to you for a command performance. And um, so that was the only benefit of that, is that I didn't have to do that because uh, Carmine is crying. So we he was due for a couple of shots. We only gave him one. I think it was for pneumococcal pneumonia because he was so unhappy. And then we take him home. I take him home, and he he falls asleep in the car. And I very gently remove him from the car. He's only asleep five minutes to start carrying him up to his bedroom. And he's still very groggy as I'm holding him and carrying him up the steps. He does wake up, though. But I put him to bed around 3 o'clock. I start to get some work done, start to prepare for the show, do more preparation for the Richard Hoagland interview. And then he doesn't go to sleep. He doesn't go to sleep. He was, I get, and he was not in the mood. 
He was just sitting there in his crib, playing with his stuffed animals, talking to his stuffed animals. Sometimes he'll share his bottle with the stuffed animals. Sometimes he'll make his stuffed animals uh, talk and kind of say mama or something along those lines. He doesn't say he doesn't sleep, stays up, goes from being super tired that he can't even uh, stay awake in the car to refusing to nap. We kept him in there for 45 minutes to an hour. Ultimately, we said, okay, now he's got to stay up because if he ends up falling asleep now, he's not going to go to bed around his bedtime at 730. So um, I spend a little more time with him. Then my wife finishes her workday. She takes him with her on some of her errands, and he stays up the uh, the whole time. But um, that was our adventure today in Carmine Land. Is a very unhappy baby at the at the pediatrician, although thankfully still very healthy. He is uh, thirty two and a half inches in height and twenty nine and a half pounds in weight. So he seems to be doing well. Uh, 800-848-9222. And now less of a chance of getting pneumococcal pneumonia. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Oh, hey, Frank. You know, does Carmine squeak like uh, Greg Kelly's daughter squeaks? He has his daughter squeaking like a monkey on there. Uh, I mean, I, I've never heard uh, how her da- how his daughter sounds, though. But he does a fair amount of squeaking, yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good approximation. What is on yeah. your mind today, Russell? Oh, okay, well, I'll get right to it, Frank. You know, on the other station that I listened to and, and participate in, they had <coughs> a host who had a drag person on. And this drag person, he distinguished between drag and trans people. It's very interesting. You can find out a lot about it. But, you know, uh, when we, they put on women's face, to me it's like blackface. And he, he admitted that they were impersonating the other sex. And what they also admitted is that in a lot of these pride parades, there's a lot of over-the-top activity. And they question whether that really behooves the LGBT community to have this kind of – I mean, they have actual sex at these parades. And I'm wondering, do you think that uh, we could possibly rein in some of these pride parades? Because they take advantage of their victimhood to do outlandish behavior. The person that was interviewed was a person named Linda Simpson, if you wanted to know his name. Yeah, I, um, I, I don't care. I don't need to hear the interview. I, I mean, when you say there's outlandish behavior, uh, do they actually have sex at these pride parades? I know the, the gay pride parade was pretty wild for a number of years. Is it still wild? You know, Frank, I may have been to one in my life. I'm not an expert, but, you know, from what I've seen and what they were implying is uh, that it was so over the top. that I mean, they not only simulate sex, they actually have sex. And can you imagine the police going in and stopping that? It wouldn't happen. I mean, when people feel like they can do anything, they do anything. That's why we have shooters. That's why we have this hacking of the foundation of our language telling us that boys are girls. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank you, uh, Russ. Yeah, I mean, look, if there's illegal activity, that certainly should not be permitted, whether it's it's sex in open spaces that shouldn't be allowed for the gay pride parade, the Puerto Rican Day parade, the St. Patrick's Day parade or anything else. So uh, that's a bridge too far. Overall, I don't care what people do in parades. If um, if they want to wear scantily clad dopey outfits, I, I don't care. But when you're talking about Public sex, I think that's another another matter altogether. 800-848-9222. William is on Staten Island. Hello, William. Hey. Hey. I like uh, I like your show a lot, but uh, you have to stop 
playing that crying baby stuff. It's like probably the worst radio in the world when you do that. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, that, that's Matt Blaze that plays it's, that. I have nothing to do with uh, that. This, this, uh, it's horrible, man. I understand you have a child and all, but it's really horrible. I I, uh, I will bring it up with uh, Matt Blaze and I love uh, show otherwise and, and uh, keep up the good work. All right, I've thank you. Listen to you for a long time. Thanks, William. Matt Blaze. Any reaction to that? I, I could see people being annoyed by that high pitch, uh, piercing blah, blah, sound. Blah blah blah. That's blah, that. That's blah, the blah, reaction. Blah, okay. blah. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey Frank. Uh, two questions. Uh, did you by any chance get that lead stop for your son, just in case? Uh, yes, I did order it uh, today, as a matter of fact. Uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. That's fantastic. The other question is this. Uh, remember I told you I had a friend of mine that uh, she wrote a song for you guys for your birthday? Not write a song. She performed one. She said you could see the boss, you know, but you, know, you, you didn't really want to go to see Springsteen. Somebody likes Sadaka. Did you ever get to see that by any, by any chance? Uh, no, I, I didn't. Uh, but wh- where would I have seen it, though? I mentioned it to you, but I mean, you probably forgot. I mean, you, I know you're busy and all that. Yeah, it's on the on the YouTube, and her name is uh, Minako M I N A K O sings, and it's on YouTube. And she did this last song for you about two weeks ago. But you and Curtis and everybody, and, and do you do funerals? Would you ever like uh, come out for like a couple hundred bucks, say like ten ten minutes worth of words? Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, whose funeral? Yeah, it might be mine. It might be mine. Yeah, I will do. I would happily do your funeral for free. Yeah, well, I don't want to say happily. I would unhappily do your funeral for free. No, I'd have to give you a, a gratuity and transportation. I would say two fifty might cover it. I only want like seven or eight minutes. That, that's about it. You know. There you I'll go. Do it in two minutes, well, are you know? are you terminally ill? Anything we should know, Al? Well, I've had cancer. I've had amputations. Uh, you guys uh, at the station have been. Uh, you don't know, like a Yankee game or a Mets game. It just evens out the day, you know? And even Curtis has really grown on me. Uh, you know, you're you're still, to me, the best. Curtis has been around longer. But I, I've, I've learned to find out, really, that he is doing the word picture. You know what I'm trying to say? But but you're all over the place. I love it, you know? Uh, I'm not the biggest UFO guy, but, boy, you give everybody a fair shot. And uh, interesting, interesting, you got to cast the characters, and guess what? Now you're everywhere in America, and you deserve to be there. I, I, I offer one other thing also, before I kick off. This girl can write uh, for free professional uh, theme music, you know? Oh. She started out by doing instrumentals. Uh, if you look, she has about 75 songs, and she'll do whatever you like, you know? It takes about two weeks. Yeah. All free. Yeah, Al, you know? can you email or text me her information um, or that link to her YouTube channel? I'd love to check it out. Yeah, just in case I don't, because I'm very, very ill. Uh, it's um, M-I-N-A-K-O, Minico, sings, because she's singing M- on YouTube. All right, I will check it out. Al, and take care of yourself. I, I would prefer not to go to your funeral right away, okay? All right, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> You know where the, the Dalai Lama they tracked him down? You know where he went? I'm afraid to ask. He went to gamble. He went to Atlantic City. And you know why? Why? Quebec. <laughs> <That's a corner laughs> Not bad, Al. Not bad. Um, that is, that's very good, actually. I may have to adopt that one myself. All right, just an update on what Carmine claims is uh, Curtis's weight. Uh, was uh, what Curtis claims is Carmine's weight. 
Curtis says he was 15 pounds at birth and 50 pounds now. So I Not just gave you the... Carmine, who, by the way, was birthed on Thanksgiving Day, is now 20 pounds. Call Dyfus. Call Child Welfare. I don't know what he's feeding that kid. And he's having him <laughs> listen to talk radio overnight. The kid's going to end up talking like me. You know, it's funny. I had uh, ChatGPT write a um, an adaptation of... Goldilocks and the Three Bears, only making it about Carmine and um, making it about a redheaded little boy, which my son is, rather than a blonde girl. And instead of three bears, make it about three cats. And instead of a Goldilocks eating porridge, it's got um, it's got uh, Carmine uh, eating salmon, right? And so I have the ChatGPT write this story. I think it came pretty good. It came pretty well, actually. But um, And I thought, maybe I'll publish this, right? I know so many publishers. Maybe uh, One, I'm not sure who gets the rights to publish it. If I could just publish it and write this book and, claim, and claim, push it off as my own product and make money from it when ChatGPT did the actual work of making the sentences rhyme and everything. Two, I'd still need to illustrate it. I mean, I guess I could use AI for that as well. And maybe we'll reach out to our friend Merrill, who's a great listener, who is a brilliant illustrator. And then I've got to figure out how to how to publish it. But I think that's relatively easy these days with self-publishing. And I started reading the story to Carmine. And um, my wife did not appreciate that in my telling of the story... I made clear that S-A-L-M-O-N is pronounced as Salmon rather than her chosen pronunciation of Salmon. So uh, she said, please, he's just learning to talk. Can't you give him a break? You, you, you do this intentionally. Why, why condemn him to a lifetime of ridicule by his teachers and, and peers? And uh, so then I pivoted to another subject but it wouldn't it be interesting if he does become a devoted listener to this show and pick up these pronunciations not because i'm doing it privately but because i do it publicly let's see until then keep asking questions this is the other side of midnight with frank morano they're running a strange program y'all now here's frank morano Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'm still annoyed at this Richard Hoagland situation. I was just telling these fellas this might be the one episode of the darker side of midnight podcast that I actually end up listening to today um, because I just looked at our email exchange again, and I said, and I won't belabor the point. The last thing I'll say, I said to him, "We will call you at." 2.20 Eastern Time, E.T., which I believe is 11.20 your time. Now, I don't know that he's in Mountain Time. So if you're getting that email, wouldn't you say, oh, no, 11.20 my time, uh, uh, um, 
2.20 Eastern is actually 12.20 my time. Rather than uh, let me think that we're confirmed when I just gave you two different times in the same sentence unintentionally. It's just, it's annoying. It's annoying what it is. Um, I, I think maybe, maybe he's annoyed that uh, that we have the same name show as him. Maybe that's, that's what it is. I don't know. Um, but uh, could be. Could be. So don't do the interview if that's the case. All right. Um, oh, Mary Beth has a comment about this, and then I want to talk about something a little bit more serious. Hello, Mary Beth. Hi, Frank. And I, I do feel badly, and I think this gentleman, I never heard of him before. This is an opportunity for him to get his name out there to people like me. If I was interested in this interview, maybe if he wrote a book, I would want to read the book. Maybe I would want to, you know, track down his his um, podcast. It's rude and it's unforgivable. And I have a great story about Keith Hernandez, mm. whom I think more people know than this. I'm sorry, Certainly. what is his name, Mr. Yeah. Oakland? Yeah, it doesn't matter. We've, we're, we're forgetting okay. him. Go ahead. Okay. Um, years ago, I was a publicist at a huge bookstore on Long Island. And we had a lot of authors come and do either talks about their books and sign the books or just book signings. And Keith Hernandez had a new book coming out. I think it was his first book. And we got him to come to the store. I remember that and book. I, I actually bought that book. It was called Pure Baseball, right? I think that was it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, usually the publicists at the publishing houses not usually, all the time, they secured the transportation to and from the store, and they would remind the author, oh, you're going to the blah, blah, blah store on Long Island. Well, we had a line of people around a very long block, including a lot of children, waiting for him. And he was about 15 minutes late, and I thought, well, traffic. He was then 25 minutes late, and I called the publishing house. And someone did answer the phone, and they said, oh, no, his publicist isn't here. Uh, I don't know if she ordered a car or not, but I'll give you his home phone number in case he's still home. I called his apartment, and a man answered the phone, and I didn't know what his voice sounded like. So I said, may I speak to Mr. Hernandez, please? And he said, well, who's calling him? And I explained the situation, and he said, oh, my God. He goes, I totally forgot about this, and they never sent a car for me. And I said, well, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, can I send a car for you now? Um, we have hundreds of people waiting here for you, including a lot of children. And I know this may be an imposition, but do you think you can come? He said, don't send a car. I will take care of it. And I will call you if you'll give me your number periodically along the route to let you know how close I am to the store. And he showed up. Wow. He, oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah. And this is a man who appreciated his fan base, obviously, you know, was interested in hawking his book as well. But, you know, I don't want to say he was somebody, but people knew who he was. Oh, no doubt. He's still one of the most famous uh, former athletes in the world. No doubt about it. So uh, a lesson to this gentleman. And again, I'm sorry, Frank, I don't know who 
he is, what he does. You said he has a podcast, maybe his podcast. He was interviewing people for that. But I truly think this is inexcusable. And I will listen to your show if he's on again, but I may tune out when Hmm. he's on. All right. Uh, Mary Beth, thank you. Great story. I love that story. I'm so glad you told it. Thank you. All right. I like that, Mary Beth. Um, All right. Let me tell you a story. I hate this story. I love that story. I hate this story. And unfortunately, uh, like the story you just heard, this story is true. Two Colorado child care workers are going to go on trial this June for presiding over a daycare center where a five-year-old pulled down a three-year-old's pants twice. Okay, understand what occurred. Five-year-old pulls down a three-year-old's pants twice. Two workers are going to go on trial. Adult workers are going to go on trial. Amy Lovato and Roberta Rodriguez of the schoolhouse daycare center in Poncha Springs face criminal charges for not reporting this to the authorities quickly enough and for putting the children in danger. Now, I want to be very clear. I am 100% not in favor of children at any age uh, pulling down one another's pants. I mean, it's gone on for, I'm sure, 100 years. It should not go on. Boys doing it to girls or whatever the case may be. Uh, I don't think that's appropriate behavior. But I am not for turning a preschool incident into a criminal trial. You know, they say the old expression, what are you making a federal case out of it? Well, sometimes it's also an overreaction to make something a state criminal case. But wasting time and taxpayer money on child endangerment cases that don't really involve child endangerment, I think it's just an incredible misuse of time and resources for children who are really in danger. Additionally, I don't want to treat children as if they have no capacity for resilience. Lenore Skenazy wrote about this story on letgrow.org, and she's one of my favorite guests. And basically she said that a bad experience does not mean a bad life. Acting as if it does undermines our ability to give kids any independence for fear that any disappointment means they'll never recover. And finally, finally, bureaucrats demanding that the rest of us observe the letter of the law with zero humanity or discretion, that's also a bit annoying. So here's what went down. A preschooler acted like a preschooler. Uh, The attorney for Lovato, Jason Flores Williams, told 11th Judicial District Judge Brian Green last week, he asked them to dismiss the charges, and this is what he said. Let this fact not be obscured. We are here because one preschooler pulled down another preschooler's pants. The judge refused to drop the charges. This is the perfect case for the jury to hear. He sold the courtroom packed with school parents 
who came to support these two people that are charged, Lovato and Rodriguez, according to the Colorado Sun. The case against Lovato and Rodriguez seems to involve involve four charges. Um, No one disputes that on January 16th, Lovato was filling in as a classroom teacher because the center was short-staffed. When one of those children wet their pants, Lovato left the classroom for between three and five minutes to clean the child and deposit the wet clothes in the laundry. When she returned, she saw the five-year-old crouched over a three-year-old who later told Lovato that the boy had tried to pull her pants down and touch her butt. The next day, when Lovato went into the center's bathroom, she found three kids there, including a girl with her pants down and the same boy. He was touching her butt. The school sprang into action. It called the parents involved. It planned an all-school meeting on the topic of touching. Rodriguez called the Chafee County Early Childhood Council to find out what else she should be doing. And she reported the pants incident to the child welfare department and the kids briefly in a room without a teacher incident to the state licensing office. But as the toddlers themselves discovered, sometimes that is not enough. The authorities shut down the daycare center midday on January 24th, calling parents to immediately come pick up their children. Terrified moms and dads raced over to they want to know what's going on. Why is the preschool being shut down in the middle of the day? They race over to the preschool and found six armed sheriff's deputies and a slew of cop cars. Must have been El Chapo's kid in that preschool. When they realized their children were safe, they wondered if one of them maybe had been molested, according to the Colorado Sun. And neither the sheriff's deputies nor the Chafee County Wild Welfare, uh, uh, Chafee County Child Welfare Authorities who joined them in the raid were providing any information. It was only two days later during a meeting at the sheriff's office that the parents learned what had happened. In summary, the potential wrongdoing really seems to involve not reporting the incidents immediately enough. These were officially reported to the authorities about three days later and leaving the kids unsupervised for the briefest of moments, three to five minutes. The defense attorneys are arguing that the question of how quickly a school's mandatory reporters must report an incident of abuse is vague. So it seems that the whole case is vague. The whole definition of abuse is here. And so is whether leaving the room to clean off a urine-soaked child constitutes neglect. I don't think it does. I mean, look, I understand you can't leave a bunch of children alone, but what are you supposed to do in this circumstance? If you're Lovato, just let the child stand there in their own pee? Uh, That I really, I don't like this. 
Uh, we need a system that promotes humanity, not a system of that rewards waste and inhumanity. When a system demands this kind of inflexible compliance, we are um, normal human beings, caring human beings. We go, we become robots. We turn off our common sense part of our brain and become robots. And I don't think that's right. Uh, Richard Wexler, executive director of the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform, said, in some ways, this perfectly illustrates a system we set up that winds up leaving nothing but trauma and harm in its wake. An awful lot of time has gone into this. Police had to investigate. Child Protective Services investigated. There's a trial about to happen. All this time and money and effort. All of this is stolen from finding the relatively few children in actual danger. Um, Colorado has a task force that is examining the whole question of mandatory reporting. And I hope they look at this case closely. They they should, anyway, because it's time to stop demanding that anyone who works with children hews to the same exacting automation standards and pretend kids are in danger when they're trying to act like caring human beings instead. I I think it's a joke that this case is going to trial. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'm trying to figure out what this guy did wrong, uh, Lovato, and um, even the other person, uh, Roberta Rodriguez, Amy Lovato, and um, they're both women, Amy Lovato and Roberta Rodriguez. I guess what they did wrong is not report it immediately after it happened. Um, I guess that's the issue here. But if you're Amy Lovato. I'd love to know where the parents of these children involved are. Are they going to come out and be defense witnesses and say, you know, this this is our child's fault, maybe our fault, and these teachers shouldn't be potentially risking a jail sentence, not teachers, but child care workers shouldn't be potentially risking a jail sentence here? I have a child that is around this age. And if this were my child in this preschool, I wouldn't be wanting these people incarcerated. I think this case is a real shame. I'd love to know what you think. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you with me on this or are you with the judge that wouldn't dismiss the charges? I think it's crazy. It's it's, it's a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Well, my first question is, where did the five-year-old learn this type of behavior in the first place? Yeah, it's a good, well, look, I mean, I guess... But uh, I guess, look, you're five years old, you become curious at that age, so I don't know, it sounds like innocent five, five and three-year-old, but to, I will say this, though, to leave a classroom alone for three to five minutes mm-hmm. of toddlers, that's a little pushing it, but having the entire SWAT team... In the middle of the day and making these parents frantically wonder what's going on, especially in today's world with mass shootings happening all the time and things like that, it was unnecessary 
to shut it down in the middle of a day. You could have waited to the end of the day and said, we're closing down right. or something like right. that. Right, that's what I'm saying. Not in the, the middle this of whole, the day. Uh, this whole situation is essentially ignoring common sense and leaving that at bay. I just posted the article, if you want to read it for yourself, and see if there's any pertinent details that I'm laying out. But I pretty much just read it directly from the Colorado Sun. Um, I just posted it. You can read it. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I think this is crazy. These two daycare workers who are probably earning 20 to $25 an hour, who are trying to just look out for the kids, they go on a trial. I can't believe it. 800-848-9222. What do you think? Joe in Queens, give me your take on this. Yeah, before I give you my take, there's a book called Stop Overreacting, an audio book, Frank. If you do audio books, listen to this book, a very good psychology book. It's about five hours audio. Stop Overreacting is the name of it. Uh, But a couple of things. One is the five-year-old boy, is he closer to five or closer to six? I'm curious if he's closer to six. I don't know that. Yeah, if he's closer to six, the guy's got some sort of problems where you can't walk into a school and pull down people's clothes so yeah, and function in, in, a, in a school setting or in society. But I think it's bad for the, you, you, you know, you're casting a, almost like a criminal creepy light over the teachers who are probably just scrambling to deal with these kids, not, you know, and could really traumatize them in terms of their future employment uh, prospects. And, you know, like that, that, you know, like this is like a record for them. So I would be sensitive to that aspect of it where, uh, you know, these two people are trying to deal with kids that have problems. Yeah, you know, I just call it kids that have problems, and there could be an overlap where you would have miscreant kids. What do you do with them then? You know, say it was like uh, kids that had problems already. How do you handle that? So I, I think it goes into territory where you're painting these teachers into a corner and making them out to be criminals when they're not criminals. Of course, Joe, I agree with. Um with everything you said on uh, on that front, I, I mean, I, I I can't imagine that there's a jury of 12 people in Colorado that are going to convict both of these people and uh, send them to prison but or jail. But that being said, it's a joke that the system has to spend this amount of time, energy and money that uh, could be used for real crimes, prosecuting these people. I just find it so wasteful. Real criminals get to walk around on the street. Instead, you're going to have a prosecutor, police officers, a judge, all waste their time and energy prosecuting daycare workers that took a child to get cleaned up after they wet their pants. The world is sick and getting sicker. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk County. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. I call this intense overreaction. This is like the case where a mother 
was prosecuted for letting her child play in her front yard. Yes, I actually covered that uh, story at the time as well. That was uh, that was similarly outrageous. Yeah. Now, if I were one of the daycare workers, I would have expelled the kid from school and told the parents, don't you even think of bringing your kid back to that school ever again until he learns proper behavior. Where in God's name did he learn to do that? Yeah, well, that was similar to the point that uh, that Matt Blaze raised. And look, and thank you, Robert. I think, you know, you're talking a five-year-old here. You're talking a three-year-old. You can't expect a five-year-old to act like an adult. However, I wasn't doing this stuff at five because it was made clear to us that this is not what you're supposed to do at any age. Well, you know, sometimes my son will will hit me, right, or or you know, kind of smack me in the face, and he does it to play. But my wife stops him, and she teaches them that that's not not, um, and I stop him. You know, that's not how you're supposed to touch people. And I think the school tried to use this as a teachable moment. And I think the teachers, or, or I mean, again, I don't know if teachers is the right word, the childcare workers did the right thing here by reporting it. And yet they're going on trial? But what? Not reporting it fast enough? I mean, what a joke. To me, this story should be getting nationwide attention. Well, now it is. But I'm saying not just on this show, but in the newspapers and on television everywhere. This, to me, is, in a nutshell, exactly what's wrong with the system. This. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Someone who we have our time zones straight and is joining us at the scheduled time is Ben Burgess. And you know what? Great, because there's nobody I'd rather talk to than uh, Ben Burgess. He's he's a funny guy. He's an intelligent guy, wonderful writer, great on the radio. And we're excited to talk with him about a bunch of things that are in the news. Ben Burgess joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Elvis version, which is certainly great, but uh, this is by Big Joe Turner. I'll tell you, I I have no desire to comment much further on this uh, Donald Trump indictment out of Manhattan um, because I feel like it's almost, uh, look, I realize it's historic, but I have nothing new to say about it. It's already been 
uh, talked about by everybody from a legal perspective, from a political perspective. It's so silly that uh, we're, we're prosecuting someone, even a former president, for a crime like this. And there are all sorts of presidents that have committed very serious crimes that have gone unpunished, unprosecuted, and who have not seen their esteem suffer in the slightest. In fact, the more time that we've gotten away from these crimes, we have seen their public esteem grow and their legacy improve, believe it or not. And every once in a while, you come across an article or a column that says brilliantly the words that you feel but are not intelligent enough to come up with on your own. And that's where Ben Burgess comes in. Uh, We've talked to Ben before, a bright guy, author of the book Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a a critique of the contemporary left, and his recent column in the Daily Beast on this subject was... Absolutely on the money. Ben, I know it's early. I appreciate you joining me on the radio. Good morning. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Ben, remind folks um, where you come from politically. You're not exactly a dyed-in-the-wool right-winger who uh, voted for Trump twice and gave him a a large contribution to that whole thing, right? Uh, No, no, I'm certainly certainly not. I was a, you know, I was a Bernie Sanders guy. Uh, Joe Biden was a very distant second choice. Uh, was uh, was not uh, was not happy about the uh, the choice that I was presented with in 2020, and uh, and I would certainly never vote for Trump. Uh, I'm a columnist for Jackman Magazine, it's a Democratic Socialist magazine, and look, I'm not I'm not against uh, prosecuting. You know Trump or any other ex-president, even for very petty crimes. I mean, if he, you know, if he speeds on his way home from Mar-a-Lago, I think he should get a ticket like anybody else. Uh, but uh, but what I do have a problem with is the fact that, like you say, so many more significant crimes are going have gone totally uh, totally unpunished. That uh, that at the same time that Trump is being prosecuted. Uh, I mean, I know that the legal case is a little bit more complicated, but the core of it is for paying hush money to a porn star. At the same time, you have somebody like George W. Bush, uh, who has not been prosecuted for uh, starting an aggressive war based on lies. You have, uh, or you know, Dick, you know, Dick Cheney, who was certainly right there with him. Uh, if you want to go back a little bit further in recent American history, you have somebody like Henry Kissinger, uh, who was involved in very serious crimes uh, committed by the Nixon White House. And uh, I, I think that, you know, I, again, it's it's not that I, you know, my point is not, oh, Donald Trump should be allowed to commit a minor crime or two. It's that uh, it's that if we're going to uh, start prosecuting 
ex-presidents for even very petty crimes like uh, like this one. We should certainly start prosecuting them for really serious crimes that uh, led to an enormous amount of death and suffering. Well, so uh, let me let me dissect a few different things there, and then I want to touch upon a few other issues with you. So when it, I, I agree. If uh, Donald Trump is speeding, he should absolutely be pulled over and uh, given a ticket like anybody else. As Ulysses S. Grant uh, while he was president, uh, that's exactly what happened. He paid a $25 fine uh, wh- when he was speeding in Washington, D.C., and that was someone that served under him in the Civil War that gave him that ticket, and he paid it happily. It seems like what happened here with Trump, though, is that if he wasn't Donald Trump, I think it's very unlikely that this crime ever would have been prosecuted, especially by a local prosecutor. It seems like this prosecutor was trying to nail him, not because he saw a crime being committed and then investigated who committed it. It seems like he was trying to find an excuse just to prosecute Trump for something. I mean, would you agree with that analysis? Uh, maybe, yeah. I think that there are uh, there are actually more serious things that Trump has been accused of in other jurisdictions. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah, but I'm not talking Georgia or the documents case or, you know, anything related to January 6th. I'm just talking about this Manhattan DA uh, situation. uh, The Alfred Bragg thing, yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's possible Bragg, you know, just wanted wanted to to be the first one to charge him with something – uh, like it's it's a it's a little bit of a legal gray area, is my understanding, because on the one hand, uh, the core of it, uh, you know, like Trump is guilty of, but on the core thing, I don't think anybody really denies that part. But also the core thing, the statute of limitations would have passed if not for this claim that it was being done in pursuit of this other crime and. Uh, and the uh, the argument on the other crime is a little bit tenuous, you know. So uh, I, I mean, I, I think I think Trump may you know may well end up you know um, walking on uh, on this. And in fact, you know, if you're one of the you know if you're if you're some other prosecutor who's like you know who's looking into one of these other offenses that you just mentioned, you know, you might actually be very pissed off. About uh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think he, uh, the only people that he's ticked off more than Trump supporters has been the other Trump prosecutors. But uh, what I know. All right. Uh, now you alluded to George W. Bush and Dick yeah. Cheney. Uh, it seems like uh, t- the years tw- 2001 through 2009 were a long time ago. And in some respects they were, other respects they weren't. Give folks a refresher course of things they did, not that were unpopular, but what sure. were legitimately criminal that they could have been prosecuted for. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think that there are a few things, but the most important one is uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, which uh, which is is a crime not just in a moral sense, although it's Certainly that. I mean, you know, there are probably, you know, statistically, there are probably people listening to this who had somebody they cared about who um, who came home in a flag draped coffin because of this war that was based on total lies and nonsense. And so, you know, what was taken from them could certainly never be given back. And I mean, that's that's a crime in that sense. But it's also a crime in the strict legal sense. Uh, that uh, if you look at the Nuremberg Tribunal that was set up after World War II, 
It declared that the first and most important war crime was launching an aggressive, unprovoked war. Uh, the uh, the UN Charter uh, is very uh, is very clear on this uh, that the uh, that uh, that it's it's a violation of international law to uh, to start uh, to start aggressive, unprovoked wars, and uh, the U.S. Constitution. Uh, says that uh, treaties that the United States is signatory to have the full force of law; that it's the uh, supreme supreme law of the land. It's in Article Six, and the U.S. is a signatory to the UN Charter. Uh, so I, I think there is actually like a very straightforward uh, legal case uh, to uh, to be made uh, that the uh, that the launching of the invasion of Iraq uh, was not just criminal in the sense that it was morally horrific, although it certainly was that, uh, but, uh, but that it, it was literally uh, a crime. And, and to really put this into perspective, uh, that if we're, you know, if we're comparing crimes, um, that, you know, what, you know, like whatever you think about the, the legal rationale for this particular prosecution of Trump, uh, I mean, if, if we're going to start charging people with that, then we should certainly start charging people for crimes that uh, that have had these enormous impacts on the, you know, certainly Iraq, the region, uh, certainly the families of thousands of Americans who died there, and really the really the entire world. I mean, like it, like just to just to pause because I, I think. It's very easy to to forget some of this because you know things move on and you know oh well you know this all started 20 years ago mm-hmm. and it sort of feels like ancient history, uh, but uh, but this is uh, this is a conflict uh, where hundreds of thousands uh, of, of of people died in Iraq and in Syria with the you know violence and chaos spread there. Uh, there were millions of people who became refugees, either internally they fled from one part of the country to the other, or uh, or external refugees. Uh, the long-term consequences of what this happened. I mean, if you think about the chaos and bloodshed in the Middle East that you know that happened uh, really for decades afterwards, you start thinking about things like the the rise of ISIS, you know, which would not have happened if not for uh, for the chaos. Uh, in uh, in Iraq, I think that crimes don't get much more uh, crimes don't get much more significant than that. And you know, and I, I wanted to start with that because that's the most absolutely that's, that's, uh, and that's the largest the largest ticket item. But I mean, I also think if you talk about the CIA torture program, mm-hmm. there are many other there are many other items on this list. There was a book written uh, by a, a pretty accomplished attorney, and he divides the. 269 war crimes of the Bush administration into four different classes. Uh, War crimes committed in launching a war of aggression, 36 war crimes committed in the conduct of war, with 175 war crimes committed in the treatment of prisoners, and 52 war crimes committed in post-war occupation. Now, a lot of people have said, and I think the people that have said this are completely incorrect, that, oh, now we look like a third world country because we put the person that lost the um, election on trial. I actually think that um, it is a very healthy sign a of a democracy when they prosecute former leaders. And we've seen 
Many of them do that. South Korea uh, did it. Italy uh, did it. Israel, uh, they're going after their their current leader. Brazil Mm -hmm. uh, did it. Uh, Country after country has uh, France with uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. There's country after country that have prosecuted that uh, their, their leaders for the crimes they committed in office. So then in comes Barack Obama who supposedly mm-hmm. wanted to turn the page on every aspect of the Bush administration, was going to end the war in Afghanistan. He didn't do that. Was going to close Gitmo. He didn't do that. Uh, was going to close, end the war in Iraq. Eventually he got around to that. Um, and he announces one of the first things he did in office is that they're not going to even investigate the Bush administration, Bush and Cheney, for any war crimes. How does Obama say that publicly with a straight face? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it's this idea that, oh, you're becoming a banana republic if you prosecute uh, former leaders. I, I think, I, I mean, it, that is exactly backwards, that, they, that, uh, that what you're showing when you refuse to prosecute former leaders who've committed serious crimes is that you have two laws, one for people with enough power and one for everybody else. Uh, And uh, if you believe in the rule of law, the rule of law should apply to everybody. And uh, so when you think about like the immediate context of, you know, what Obama said in that case, you know, was about uh, the, uh, it was about the torture program. uh, And uh, you said he was going to look, you know, look forward, not backwards, which is a great standard. If you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you're arrested for, you know, like if you uh, you try to hold up a liquor store or something, you know, you should uh, you should tell them that, you know, that, you know, you want to look forward, not backwards. And we shouldn't spend all this time talking about the liquor store robbery that happened in the past. Uh, but uh, but I I think that that is a particularly horrifying example in many ways, you know, because we're talking about, you know, people who uh were oftentimes, you know, they were uh, they were waterboarded, which is, by the way, uh, one of the crimes that Japanese officers who were actually executed uh, after World War II uh, in the War Crimes Tribunal were, you know, that is part of what they were accused of in some cases was waterboarded American uh, American POWs, uh, and a lot of what happened in those black sites uh, and uh, in Gitmo and Abu Ghraib was much worse. Uh, than uh, than waterboarding. If you really wanted to look into the uh, into the lurid details of that, and when you say uh, we're not going to prosecute uh, anybody uh, for that, uh, then uh, then you you've just uh, you've just given permission to the next guy who's in office to do uh, exactly to do the exactly, and that's what's so frightening. So Obama decides not to do it. Now this was a case that the uh, Trump brag case that was passed on by federal prosecutors and then brought by a state prosecutor. Is there an argument to be made that a local prosecutor could prosecute Bush and Cheney for the crimes they committed in office, even though the federal government didn't do it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, uh, like in the Alvin Bragg case, uh, the legal gray area is that a crime that, does fall within his purview, was committed in the service of this other crime that doesn't fall within his purview, and uh, you know maybe maybe not right. The courts will uh, will have to uh, will have to uh, to hash this out. 
But the, you know, I, I think the, you know, I mean, at, at look, if some local prosecutor somewhere uh, came up with a, uh, you know, came up with a legal argument for uh, for doing this, I, you know, I would I would be all for it. I mean, I would anything, uh, you know, anything that would actually make some of these people face consequences for what they did, I think would be gotcha. a good thing. But that... I think I think the real the real question is. Why is it Merrick Garland doing it? Right. I think that's and that is a great question. Now, at this point, would the statute of limitations have run on those crimes to the best of your understanding? Well, I don't think there's a statute of uh, limitations on war crimes. I mm-hmm. mean, if you, uh, you know, like uh, generally speaking, you know, this is. You right. Know, that's right. They're still going that, after Nazis. That's true. Yeah. I mean, there were people who, you know, there were people who were. Uh, you know, there were prominent cases like in the late 90s of, you know, former Nazi uh, war criminals who'd led quiet lives. And, you know, like I think one guy was in Ohio, like a concentration right. camp guard who'd been lived in Ohio since the 1940s. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think that that's uh, – and, you know, I, I think that that's something that you – again, it, you should be uh, – you should be prosecuting people for – if you're serious, absolutely, about absolutely, and it's and it's and it's also just, I mean, it's also really worth taking a beat to remember how bad that Obama president was, because at that point, uh, you know, I mean, okay, there's no legal statute of limitations on any of this stuff, as far as I know, but they have a, but at that point, that was fresh, absolutely. I mean, is, the the people who done this, who authorized this for the highest levels, had just left office and we're saying okay we're already shaking the etch a sketch and uh and pretended this didn't happen right. uh yeah you know. and and i understand the need to do that politically and to move uh, look forward not backwards as obama said but at least gerald ford when he did that with nixon he at least was bold enough to pardon nixon and he always said that by nixon accepting that pardon he was accepting responsibility for having committed those crimes. The American people got no such satisfaction from Bush needing to accept a pardon from Obama. Uh, so that's uh, we could talk about about this one all day. Very quickly, I want to get your take on two other subjects. The yep. leaked documents that have come out about the uh, Ukraine-Russia situation, a lot of interesting information about this. Mm-hmm. I- interesting information that the U.S. is spying on everybody, including our allies, including Zelensky, including the South Koreans. The South Koreans are not at all happy about this. I- information that the Mossad actually helped foment some of these uprisings in Israel that everybody thought was spontaneous. Uh, tell me what you think the biggest takeaways are from these leaked documents that we've seen thus far. Yeah, well, I one you know one thing that is a really important takeaway uh, is that Zelensky has uh, apparently one of the things that we learned from spying on him uh, is that uh, if he got the longer range missiles uh, that he wants, that he wants to strike targets within Russia. Now, from his perspective, that's understandable. Russia, you know, Russia invaded his country. You know, he wants to fight them off using every tool at his disposal. Uh, but it's uh, from the perspective of avoiding a wider war that could be catastrophic for, for everybody, for the entire world, uh, certainly for us, and you know, uh, but so also for the Ukrainians, also for everybody, that the uh, this is uh, this is a very, very big deal. And I, I think it does, uh, you know, like – 
I think that I think that things like that, things like the revelations about U.S. intelligence estimates that say that there's no realistic possibility, basically, that uh, that the war is going to wrap up with some total Ukrainian victory anytime soon. I think that the reason that it's important and the reason that, you know, I mean, whoever leaks this, uh, frankly, I, I think, you know, uh, obviously right now, whoever leaks this is going to be very worried about being discovered and arrested. But, you know, if I had my way, they'd get a medal because I, I think that this is a these are questions that in a democracy absolutely we should all we should all be talking about that if oh hey so it turns out that there is no scenario whereby there's going to be a quick ukrainian victory so how much longer are we going to continue to play nuclear roulette you know how much uh, how much longer are we going to pour resources into this into this conflict is it actually more humane to do that rather than seeking a negotiated settlement oh my god uh if uh if if people do get these longer range missiles uh then uh, that that could lead uh that could lead to really disturbing escalations of the war these are all things that you know on the premise that you know citizens of the democracy should uh, should be having a vigorous public debate about what the foreign policy should be. That's, these are things that allow that to be a much more informed debate. And, uh, let me end with this, Ben, uh, because, and we've got to have you back soon because there's so many things I want to ask you about. You are a lecturer at Rutgers, but as I understand it, you're on strike now. Why are you on strike? Yeah, so the strike uh, started on uh, Monday morning. Uh, so contract negotiations have been going on for uh, for a year and going nowhere. And I think that uh, the sort of fundamental thing to understand about all of this uh, is that Rutgers, like many universities, as there are trends across higher education in uh, the United States – increasingly wants to rely on a workforce that's much more precarious, has many fewer job protections, and that they just don't have to uh they don't have to pay as much, right? You know, they they try to keep people every, you know, every year just below the threshold of the number of classes they have to they wear if they assign them that many classes, they'd have to reclassify them as full time, pay them much more money, give them health insurance. And I think this goes along with a lot of other trends elsewhere in American society. Think about the difference between a traditional cab driver with uh, with benefits and retirement plan and an Uber driver, mm. for example. And uh, and so I, I think that uh, I think that in terms of getting Rutgers to sort of stand by the values that it often claims, when it's easy and cheap uh, to uh, to stand by, and uh, and having you know, having better uh, better conditions, having you know, having the possibility of you know of a kind of security and, and dignity for the people who are doing the work that actually keeps keeps the university going. I think this is potentially very uh, very important. And I know uh, so uh, you know the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, has said he wants to uh, to mediate this, but I, I really hope that he doesn't just want to sort of get a resolution really quickly, even if it's one that doesn't really address the issues uh, that caused this in the first place. And, you know, and it is actually going to do it in a way sure. that's, uh, that's, that's going to, uh, that's, that's going to allow for like a meaningful change in the way that Rutgers does business.
All right, uh, Ben, uh, going to have to end it there. I hope people check you out in the pages of The Jacobin. They could check you out your writing at uh, jacobin.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-I-N. And your book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left, is still available. And uh, it's not just available. It's more relevant than, than ever. Ben Burgess, thank you very much for the time this morning. All right. Thank you so much, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Beach Boys, it certainly feels like summer for the first time of the year. I spent uh, the entire afternoon outside without even a light jacket. That's right. I I was uh, taking my son out, and um, I reached for my very stylish denim jacket, which you can get at the other side of Midnight Online Store. Just make sure you use that promo code FRANK15. And uh, my wife says, oh, you don't need that. It's warm out. And sure enough, she was right. All right, uh, those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you after the top of the hour. And uh, maybe I can enlist your help with something. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thanks for listening. So, a uh, couple of weeks ago, my wife and I are having a conversation, and if there's someone in my life that has even a more hectic schedule on a daily basis than I do, it's my wife. In addition, I mean, the only thing she doesn't have is her schedule is somewhat conventional. She's not nocturnal. But other than that, I mean, she's doing everything that I'm doing, only a lot more. So she's working essentially two jobs. She's working from home, so she doesn't have to travel. That's true. And she is uh, doing the lion's share of the work in looking after our child at the time that I'm sleeping and or at the time that I'm working. 
So, and she manages our household doing all the chores, doing the overwhelming bulk of the uh, cooking and cleaning, uh, handling all the, um, the, all the shopping, a- anything that involves running our household largely she's responsible for, which takes an enormous amount of time. She's taking care of three cats. She spends an enormous amount of time, as everybody with a 16-month-old or a cat, let alone three cats, is aware. She spends an enormous amount of time every day cleaning. She puts so much time and effort into cleaning that she, uh, there, there are people that are allergic to cats, and I'm not joking about this. There are people that are allergic to cats that come over our house that don't know that we have a cat. They don't feel an allergic reaction because wow. there's no dander. There's, I mean, it is... Really? Clean as anything. So, um, and all that, you know, without getting too much into our personal life, all that takes a toll because she's not sleeping a lot. She's working a lot, caring for our child, running our household. And it, it leads to a great deal of collective stress. So uh, I, I do what I can to sort of ease the burden of what I can, empty the dishwasher, take out the garbage and so forth, uh, obviously look after Carmine. But a couple of weeks ago, we're looking at everything that she does. And it's if this was a seesaw, uh, you would see Laurel on one hand of this, on one side of the seesaw and, and Hardy on the other. I mean, so we're looking at everything that she does a couple of weeks ago. And she says, uh, I'll tell you what, what I'd love for you to do after Easter is maybe you can, not maybe, she said, I would love for you to cook dinner for us one night a week. Even if it's just um, you're, you're, you cook up salmon burgers, whatever, whatever the case may be, if you can handle dinner one night a week, that would be Great and really helpful. <laughs> she said you could pick whatever night you want to do it. And if you can handle that, that would be great. In fact, if when I go shopping, if you tell me the ingredients a day or two before, I will go out and get the ingredients for you as well. So that's the wow. deal that we made. So I told her uh, I'm supposed to go to this uh, Bruce Springsteen concert on Friday but we'll we'll talk about that later, perhaps. So I'm not around Friday. Friday is my preferred day to do dinner. And she's made clear, you can't order because our finances are stretched to the max right now. So we're trying not to take on any additional expenses. So um, she says, you can order, but if you could prepare something once a week, that'd be great. So I like to do Friday. Because Friday and Saturday, those are the days where I don't have this sword of Damocles hanging over my head in terms of the urgent need to do six, seven hours of show preparation in preparation for the show. So because I'm going to be at this uh, concert on Friday, can't do Friday. So this week, I said that I would do Thursday. So that's what I'm doing this Thursday. Now, that's where we are. Additionally, my wife... Does not eat meat. Maybe a week or two ago, 
she is experiencing some uh, ab- uh, abdominal discomfort. She is just unsettled, not vomiting or anything. Uh, she's just unsettled. And she traces this to maybe having had dairy earlier in the day. I forget what it was that she had, maybe a slice of pizza or something. But she said, you know, I'm starting to think that this unsettled feeling that I get, maybe it's tied to dairy. And I think I might be lactose intolerant. So she's cut out not just dairy, but all sorts of other things that have uh, lactose in it. And it turns out there are a lot of things that have lactose in it beyond dairy. So as of now, she is off meat. And much like uh, Kenneth here, she is off cheese and dairy products. And Thursday, I'm doing dinner. Now, understand, still have a show to prepare for Thursday night, Friday morning. So what I would like right now is your suggestions, and I've done a lot of research on this, a lot of research. I would love your suggestions for something that I can cook on Thursday, because I'm going to start planning now, today, this morning. Um, something that I can cook for dinner on Thursday night that the three of us can enjoy that is simple, meaning it's difficult to um, to screw up. I mean, not like a um, uh, I don't know what's a what's a complicated meal. Um, it, uh, I don't know, uh, like timpano, right? That's a complicated dish. Um, but a simple, difficult-to-screw-up dish that does not take a lot of time to prepare, that is delicious, yet is healthy, yet has no dairy and no meat. What would you, what do you suggest? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Two two, I, I'm thinking that going with fish. I was looking at a bunch of recipes. I was thinking maybe, maybe even um, grilled shrimp, something along those lines. Um, we had maybe a see. There's a couple of good. She also doesn't like shellfish, so. Um, that takes some some of the fish off the, some of the seafood off the table. There's a couple of good recipes in that Ralph Nader uh, cookbook. I was looking at that, and then I was looking at maybe grilled pistachio lemon pesto shrimp. But the pesto, depending on what kind of pesto you use, it does have uh, it does have a little dairy in it. So I was thinking maybe I don't know. Um, if you have a suggestion, let me know. I was thinking maybe tacos, maybe maybe something along those lines. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, that, that's sort of the direction that I'm leaning. And you can have a couple different types of tacos, uh, maybe tofu, maybe uh, shrimp. And I still have the ingredients for that lentil soup that's in Ralph Nader's cookbook, 
So I may make that. Not sure what to do for dessert. I mean, we don't have to have dessert. We usually don't have dessert, but maybe we'll get make a fruit salad or something. Maybe seared scallops. Although I don't think she has the same affinity for scallops that I do. So maybe a tomato poached halibut. Huh? That's not too complicated. All right? A tomato poached halibut. That's the direction I'm going unless one of you comes up with a better recipe for me to try Thursday. Uh, I like the sound of that. Tomato poached halibut. That's one of the ones I, I found online. They say it's a prep time total 30 minutes. It's not bad. Not a lot of ingredients. A little olive oil, a couple of peppers, small onion. Um, she was having a problem with tomatoes yesterday, too. So this the recipe calls for tomatoes. So that really wouldn't be a good recipe. I'll see where she is on tomatoes by tomorrow. But that's kind of the direction I'm leaning in. Tomato poached halibut. Looks delicious. Goes with a lot of different types of sides. But um, let me know what you come up with. You can also email me. I know we have a bunch of people that listen to the show on podcast. That's fine, too. Uh, you can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, but uh, if you want to call in right now, you can. 800-848-9222. Al in New Jersey, you have a recipe for me? I sure do. I sure do. You should try uh, escarole and beans. It's okay. a fantastic, simple dish. You start off uh, with white beans, a little garlic and oil. Get that going in a, in a, in a pan uh, in another pot. Chop up your escarole and a little chicken broth. Get that going, and you bring the two together once uh, they're both yeah, cooked. I like escarole and beans, so that's that's actually not a bad suggestion. And you would do that as the main, not the side. I would do that as a main. Make okay. sure you got a nice loaf of Italian bread with it. All right. Uh, there you go. Uh, it's not bad. That's uh, not bad. Escarole and beans is not bad. So I got tomato poached halibut, depending on where Rachel is on halibut. I have escarole and beans. All right. These are, these are not bad. These are not bad. Eddie in Babylon, what do you have for us? Yes, Frank. Okay. Uh, so how is she with garlic and oil? Uh, good. She's pretty good with garlic and oil. Were you suggesting like a pasta aioli or something? Uh, pasta aioli. I was going to say put beans in there like the last gentleman did, but uh, how about you talk about salmon? Uh, instead of burgers, you could make uh, salmon uh, uh, meatballs if you want because she doesn't eat meat. Also, if you know, do you like broccoli, Rob? Yes. Okay, so you you know you put the oil and um, uh, garlic in a pan, uh, brown it, uh, some onions in there, put that broccoli rub in, some water, steam it, and there's your side dish. I'm getting hungry. So you think salmon <laughs> meatballs with a side of broccoli rub? Right, right. Okay. All right. Um, we see we did we did we had salmon last night, so I don't think we're going to do salmon again tomorrow night, twice in one week. That's a lot of salmon. I don't know about that. But uh, the broccoli rob's a good suggestion for a side dish. Larry on Long Island, what do you think? Frank, grilled eggplant. Is your grill working? Yes. Grilled eggplant with a rice pilaf. You don't need to put any cream in the pilaf, just a lot of chicken stock. Is that acceptable, chicken stock? Um, Well, I'm sure if she doesn't know about it, it would be. You could keep it down to a minimum. And uh, for me, 
maybe some string bean almondine. Okay, that's not bad. Uh, that that is not bad. I, I, okay, I'll put that on the list. Grilled eggplant. Uh, she does eat eggplant. That's not bad. Ron in Michigan, what's on your mind? Frank, your your last subject on war crimes and uh, uh, stuff like that. And you said we, we put on Nazi uh, criminals who are, were in charge of death camps, still on trial. Well, we also make them NATO generals. In the case of Reinhard Gellin, who was a top Nazi uh, war criminal on the Eastern Front, we made him top NATO general and also incorporated uh, his entire intelligence Nazi network and every one of his agents into our OSS CIA. So in in other words, we took Nazi philosophy uh, and incorporated into our Western uh, uh, NATO and it's put us in a position where we are at right now with Ukraine and Russia. And as far as war crimes trial, you know, we had a war called Vietnam in which we I've heard of that. Yeah. You know, the war crimes that we perpetrated on the Vietnamese people and our own veterans is 10,000 times worse than anything that the Russians are doing to you. Well, that's why and if you read that Ben Burgess piece, the person he's also calling for prosecuting Kissinger for war crimes in Vietnam as well. So uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, George Bush had a monopoly on war crimes at all. 800-848-9222. Original, Rick. Everyone genuflected as we said it. Well, what do you have for us, Rick? I was going to ask you if they genuflected. You took that yes, We did. Good. We did, yes. Uh, okay, well, listen. I don't have a recipe because I don't cook, but I do have a suggestion. Instead of jumping through hoops and all this, has your wife ever thought about just taking the, would they sell millions and millions of, like lactate so she can eat what she wants to eat. I, I can't eat beans. I love Mexican food. Uh. So I put a couple drops of Beano in my in my food, and I'm fine. Yeah, it's just well, put, it's look, just put, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, she's not necessarily even sure that she's uh, lactose intolerant or, as Kenneth calls it, dairy, dairy sensitive. But, um, it, you know, she's just basically seeing if this helps, and so far... So far, it has. So maybe next well, week. Well, I would I would suggest that she takes the lactate and eats the, the the cheese or whatever. And if she doesn't have a reaction, then she knows she is lactose. Right, that's intolerant. a good philosophy too. I will you suggest know, that it's not, today. It's not a it's, it's not a medicine. It's an it, uh, it, it's an you know uh, a natural enzyme. You're just replacing that your body doesn't make enough of. Yeah, that's actually not a bad suggestion. Um, and I'm trying to think if we discussed that. Maybe we didn't. I'll bring that up with her today. Gigi is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gigi. Hello. Take a very large fry pan and put a little bit of olive oil in it. Place two or three slices of filet of sole. Then dress it up with black pepper, garlic powder, onion rings, and chopped parsley. And just steam it for 20 minutes. Very delicious. Right. I make it every other week. Oh, this sounds mm-hmm. uh, this sounds great. Um, what uh, what do you serve as a side dish? String beans. And and uh, what do you how, what do you just broil the string, string beans? beans? I would boil the string beans and then I would just dress it up with plum tomatoes. I like that. That Gigi, top, I yeah. think you might have a winner there. Uh, that's that's not bad. Not bad. I like that one. Steve in Manhattan. What do you have for us, Steve? Steve, 
All right. Steve's got something else to do. 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hiya, Frank. You know, it really keeps infuriating me to hear uh, people like yourself uh, accuse Bush of war crimes. You know, this, you didn't you couldn't criticize Obama for not bringing Sheikh Khalid uh, Mohammed to, uh, you know, to a military tribunal. Um, I you did, yes, I did. Not, uh, yes, I did. OK, but the point is you criticized him for not uh, bringing George Bush to trial for war crimes. Do you really feel that the people that try to destroy America should not be waterboarded? Let's 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 just like. Uh, uh, let's see what exactly what's going on here in your mind. I, again, you're breaking up, Larry. I, I know you're. In, I don't want to. I don't want an interruption of your right. uh, in, insulting rant. Uh, well, you're not good, but we can hear you. Go ahead. These people that tried to destroy America, uh, and not only that, but you're overlooking the fact that there were heinous crimes against humanity by Saddam and his sons. The things that his sons used to do. The gassing of the Kurds. And by the way, that gas that they used, that was one of the weapons of mass destruction. Right, okay, Larry, we're losing— looking for, uh, and he had used them already. Okay, right, and Larry, do you, do you want to look into what every world leader does to the, the citizens within uh, its own borders and also go and invade those countries under false pretenses? Uh, well, you say false pretenses. He was— he was he was um, threatening Israel. Israel is our ally, ally in the Middle East. All right. Well, was, we, we, it's, it, it, you're not allowed to go to war uh, just for, uh, uh, you know, uh, what you say is a threat, but there was no, um, there was no overt uh, threat to Israel. There was no open threat to Israel from Saddam Hussein. And that was, was hang also, on, hang on, Larry. Uh, I, uh, there was also, there was, that was not what George Bush sold this war to the American people as. He didn't say we need to topple Saddam Hussein because he's threatening Israel. He said uh, that uh, there were weapons of mass destruction, and that's why we needed to go in. Okay, but aside from that, uh, why do you feel that it was wrong to waterboard the the, peop- the mastermind uh, of 9-11 and the people that, that, that were members of al-Qaeda? Why is that wrong? Well, first of all, we're not talking right and wrong. That's an ethical question. We're talking legal and illegal. And under the rules of warfare, uh, ask John McCain, who was actually tortured, it was illegal. But let's put that aside. What about uh, the all the other classes of war crimes, the 269 other war crimes committed in launching this war, committing the war, and then uh, dealing with the occupation of this war. That has nothing to do with with, uh, waterboarding. That's all hindsight. Basically, that's looking right. over your shoulder. Right, exactly. And that's what I want to do. I want to make clear that this country has zero tolerance for war crimes. But instead, what Barack Obama and every other president in my lifetime have done is say the exact opposite, that we're OK with you committing war crimes as long as we eventually get to be in charge. And what that has said is to every other president is you can do it, too. If we were to stand up and say to George Bush and Dick Cheney, no, we're actually going to say that America stands for American values and we're going to stop committing war crimes and we're going to prosecute the war criminals that do like Bush and Cheney, then all of a sudden you'd see presidents stop acting like thugs. 
I'd like to know what you consider a war crime. Making a war that 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 was that was turned out to be a disaster in retrospect. That's a war crime. No, no. I mean, it, well, first of all, yes. There's if you look at um, all 269 uh, war crimes that uh, that Michael Haas uh, divides into his book, George W. Bush War Criminal. It's not one or two. The, the war crimes committed in the conduct of war, the attacks on uh, civilians, the war crimes committed in the treatment of prisoners, the war crimes committed in the post-war occupations, the crimes committed in launching a, a war of aggression, these are all uh, textbook definition of uh, of war crimes. I mean, uh, you know what? We'll have Michael Haas, who's an attorney and a real expert in this, on the program, and we'll have him uh, explain to you exactly why each of these 269 is actually a war crime. This way you don't have to take it from an untrained legal mind like me. But what you're doing, Larry, is obfuscating. You, it sounds to me like, and th- thank you for the call, but it sounds to me like... You like George Bush politically for some bizarre reason, and you're trying to stand up and stick up for unforgivable conduct. What George Bush has done, not just on this, but on issue after issue, it is so uh, unforgivable that if there were any justice, not only would George Bush be prosecuted, George Bush would be exiled to uh, an island somewhere he he would spend you know uh, he would he would be banished and, and not in polite society and getting to um you know getting to be the toast of the town and uh be treated with all the grandeur that an ex-president is treated with um the international tribunal which uh, again a lot of people don't necessarily have a lot of respect for but the International Tribunal, they just labeled Vladimir Putin a war criminal. You want to compare the conduct of people like Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, uh, John Ashcroft, and their advisors to the things that Vladimir Putin has done. And I think um, the folks at The Hague would have a pretty interesting trial for Vladimir Putin as well. I mean... If you want to talk about ignoring the warnings of the 9-11 attack, okay, you make a mistake. We all make mistakes. You are launching a deadly war in Iraq under false pretenses, destroying the U.S. economy, issue after issue. And um, the guy is still uh, just the dichotomy is so alarming to me in terms of how he's regarded by the establishment and Donald Trump. Donald Trump's being prosecuted by a Manhattan DA for a a crime that no one in the history of Manhattan has ever gone to prison for. Ever. Ever. And um, it's a crime that the federal Justice Department made a conscious decision not to prosecute. And yet here we are. The world is standing still to watch this prosecution take place. And yet all the while, Bush and Cheney get to walk around like they don't have a care in the world. 
In fact, they're talking about his daughter, Cheney's daughter, as a presidential candidate. She's on the um, uh, she's uh, at the University of Virginia now as a respected scholar, which is just mind boggling to me. Uh, Donald Trump would they wouldn't even let him into the lunchroom at the University of Virginia, I'm betting. And Liz Cheney is a respected scholar and a potential presidential candidate. I mean, it's just it's just the world's upside down when that's the kind of situation we're in. 800-848-9222. Sorry for going on such a rant. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm accustomed to ignorance from people like Larry, but I'm not accustomed to such a defense of ignorance. John's in Baltimore. Hello, John. Hey, good morning, Frank. How you doing? Great, doing great. You you know, it could always make you smile after a little rant. How about breakfast for dinner? You ever have that when you were a kid? So that's my favorite. That is my favorite. But I I think that might be one of the rules that I'm not allowed to do breakfast because that's what I would do every night for dinner is breakfast for dinner. But um, uh, let's say I can get her to bend on that. My favorite to to make is uh, an omelet or or eggs. What's your specialty when it comes to um, breakfast uh, breakfast for dinner? I was going to say the same thing, an omelet. Or you could make her like a special French toast and you richen up the egg egg batter by putting a little bit of – coffee creamer in it like you could do one of those fancy starbucks coffee creamers like a hazelnut or a toasted almond or or anything like that and a little bit of cinnamon she'd love it yeah actually it sounds pretty good i will see about uh, i'll see about that one thank you john appreciate that 800-848-9222 i'll tell you what we'll do we'll see if we can't give away a little bit of money uh if you are the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. We'll play the $1,000 minute, and you can try and win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. They're not difficult. It took me a while to come up with them today because we had to come up with at least six new ones because the guy yesterday did so well. But um, they are – so what we I ended up just picking pretty easy questions. 800-848-9222, seventh caller to that number. We're going to be an opportunity to play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the Dead Milkman uh, Filet of Soul. Where'd you find this, uh, Matt Place? Got this a while ago. See, we did a whole thing on Filet of Soul about four years ago, maybe five years ago. In that um, my wife, whenever she would go out to dinner, she would always order Filet of Soul, and she's always disappointed. Now, I love Filet of Soul, and my wife has stopped ordering it because she finds it perpetually disappointing. And I asked, 
where is the best filet of sole that you've ever had? And Evelyn and Bayonne called in and said it's this restaurant in Bayonne. I don't remember where, where she said it. And I said I was going to take my wife there to try their filet of sole, and maybe that would be get win her back to filet of sole. But um, it's certainly a risk to, uh, you know, uh, to try filet of sole when I know she's had a a troubled history with it. All right. Without further ado, let us try to give away some money as part of The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Alan is in Queens. Hey there, Alan. Hi, good morning. I'm well, thank you. Alan, have you heard this contest before? I've never entered it, but I've uh, listened to it. Okay, so you know the rules. Yes. Okay, great. So if you're ready, uh, we'll get started, okay? Let's go. All right, hang on one second. Let me pull up these uh, these questions here. Um uh, are you, so you're always up at this time, Alan, or uh, you just up for a Ever special Ever since reason? I retired, I'm a very nocturnal person. Oh, good. Where, where are you retired from? I was a uh, high school English teacher oh. for New York City Board of Education. Very nice. I'm sure you've got some stories. All right. Uh, yes, let's get I started. Uh, the first, first question is right up your alley, Alan. What is a synonym for the word hot? A synonym? Hot. Oh. Uh, not an antonym, a synonym. Correct. Uh, warm. What does AI stand for? Artificial intelligence. What ocean is off the coast of California? The Pacific. What president is Madison High School in Brooklyn named for? James Madison. Who was the first president of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Um, um, after uh, Gorbachev. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Gorbachev was head of the Soviet Union, but he never actually president of Russia. Once you tell me the answer, I'm going to go, oh, I It was knew uh, that. Boris Yeltsin. Oh, Yeltsin. Yeltsin. Correct. Yeah, they've All only right. they've only had three presidents in the 30 years they've been a country. Yeltsin. Yeah, 22 of them was this maniac <laughs> named Putin. Alan, I'm going to put you on hold and give uh, give uh, give Kenneth your information. We'll send you a consolation prize. Okay, thank you. Um, did well though. He got up to question five. Got up to question five. Although I, I didn't mean that first question on a synonym for hot to be so tricky. That's kind of hard. Is it? For the first question? Really? A lot okay. of people don't know the difference between synonyms and antonyms. He even, All right. He get... even said it. And he's an English teacher. Okay. All right. Well, I apologize. I, I will make the first question easier uh, tomorrow. So there, there you have it. You know what it was? Yesterday, I was having, I don't know why, I was having question writer's block. None of my usual sources of inspiration were coming to me. And I, I usually I try to do one question on pop culture, one question on literature, one question on sports, one question on uh, on you know history, and for some reason I was having a uh, a tough time. But uh, uh, so I figured, all right, what's another word for hot? And I said, all right, well, at least maybe that's too broad. I should say, what's a synonym for hot? But it's not neither here nor there. All right, uh, Tom is in the Bronx. He has been patiently holding. Hello, Tom. 
Yeah, hi, Frank. Hey, I like to say that hey, the world has always been upside down, no matter how you look at it. There's always somebody in there going to make things miserable and lousy and all. And th that's what we're facing now. I like to say, too, that if you want any good cookbooks, Gary Knoll has a very good one. That uh, he put. If you can call Gary Knoll, do that. Well, I, maybe, I, I, I'm not going to call Gary Knoll. But a broadcaster, he no. may give you the information on how you can get his cookbook. Now that's okay. I, I got some good suggestions here, and a few other people have emailed me some good suggestions. Thank you, uh, though, Tom. I appreciate the the thought. Um, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I want to wish a happy birthday to, of all people, um, Ed O'Neill from Married with Children and Modern Family, a terrific actor, also great in some films. He is so well-known as a TV actor for playing Al Bundy and the guy from Modern Family. But he also was terrific alongside Rick Moranis in Little Giants. And he has a small role. It's almost kind of a cameo, but he has a very small role in a film called um, The Spanish Prisoner, where he does a great job. And a less convincing actor would not have pulled off that role as well because of – I don't want to give anything away because it's such a wonderful movie – because of the intrigue in which he handles that role. And there's also a wonderful, there's not a lot of great Thanksgiving films out there, but there's a wonderful Thanksgiving film called Dutch uh, that uh, that he stars in, and that, that's probably his best movie. David Letterman also celebrating his birthday today. Andy Garcia, the star of Godfather Part Three, celebrating his birthday today, as is uh, actress Claire Danes from My So-Called Life. And from Homeland, most recently. Happy birthday to everybody that is having a birthday today. Uh, let me say hello to Brandon in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Frank. Uh, if you want to try to sneak breakfast for dinner in there, why don't you do like a quiche? You know, just get a pre-made pie crust, crack some eggs, put some vegetables in and some cheese. Yeah, it's kind of more of a dinner. Yeah, than... yeah. Again, I'm trying to stay away from dairy until she gives me the go ahead that oh, she's starting right. to take lactate. That's not bad yeah. though. I like. I you like. Don't the, eat cheese, yeah. I like the idea. I like. Yeah. So, do you have a good suggestion for a dairy-free quiche? Well, don't you just have to take the uh, the cheese out? I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, yeah. But you know what she's yeah, going to say? Is she's going to say that she probably had bre uh, eggs for breakfast that day? And is that a mm -hmm. lot? Well, I was going to say like a. Uh, you know, balsamic glazed salmon, but then you said no salmon. Right. So, well, uh, only because we just had it last night. So uh, someone yeah. else, um, my friend Hank, suggested a uh, uh, another uh, uh, maple glazed salmon, but I I don't know if that's going to uh, fly two nights in the same week. I'm liking this halibut. I like the lady that called in about the fillet of sole. So, um, yeah. but I, I, I like quiche for the future. If you want to go easy, that's what I'm I'm yeah. leaning towards. Also, I put I have shrimp tacos on the list. And maybe I'll have a sort of three different varieties of taco, maybe uh, shrimp, maybe maybe tofu, and maybe one other type. And then you can that kind of mix and match. Uh, thank you, Brandon. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Sal is in Jersey City. Hello, Sal. Good morning. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Thanks. I, I'm, I'm trying to understand, is it D.A. Allen Bragg? He's looking for crime. It must be related to Alvin. Nope. 
I'm sorry. Okay. Go ahead. Um, how come he hasn't looked at Charlene McRae, former first lady of New York, Bill de Blasio's wife, with an alleged missing, missing 800 to $900 million from Operation Thrive, and when a Post reporter pushed her for an answer, and it's on the front page, the uh, haters will always hate and strut it away. That's eight or nine hundred million. Yeah, how much they could have helped mentally ill people on the street? I yeah. don't understand it. I I, uh, I uh, don't disagree with you, Sal. I mean, there's no question. I think mis mis uh, misspending or wasting a billion dollars. That's um. That's pretty glaring. Is it criminal? I don't know. I guess it depends on the details of it. I mean, there's no allegation that Shirlane McRae put it in her pocket or anything like that. I mean, she wasted it. She spent it on programs that were ineffective. Is that a crime? Is it a crime to waste taxpayer money? Unfortunately, I don't think I don't think it is, uh, because if that were a crime, I think you'd see a lot of members of Congress and the city council uh, be looking at an indictment as well. So uh, I don't think it crosses the line between being criminal and being just irresponsible. There's some other things that went on during the de Blasio administration that I think were um, a little bit more on the overly shady, shady side. And I think Preet Bharara had a very strong case uh, against prosecuting uh, in terms of potentially prosecuting de Blasio in 2017. And he chose not to. Chose not to. Uh, Joanne is in Maryland. Hello, Joanne. Hello. How Hi. are you? Hanging in there. Thanks. Good. Um, I have celiac disease, and I'm also lactose intolerant. So oh, okay. I take lactate. With mm-hmm. the, as soon as I drink my milk, I, that's what I drink. I, that's what I take it with. And I don't have any issues at all. Okay, so maybe I'll just pick up. I'll, maybe I'll just pick up pick up some lactate today, and we'll see how that works out. That would probably I would suggest to do that before you take anything out because I mean some, sometimes um, I've tried different things and it doesn't go too well with my stomach. The older I get, the more sensitive my stomach gets. So I'm just learning how to maneuver. But somebody told me lactate, and I told I did it, and it works very very well. I, I will uh, I will try this, uh, Joanne. Thank you. Thank you. Let us know how it works out. I will. For her too. I will. I, okay. I will get some. Thank you. You know what happened yesterday, um, or two days ago, technically. Our block, as I've said, especially when it's nice weather, it's a perpetual block party. The neighbors are always out. The children are always out. Everyone's got children, so they're always out playing. And then the adults will be outside um, while the kids are playing. Uh, having drinks and smoking cigars. It's just a wonderful block. It's always a lot of fun. And yesterday, so obviously the ice cream man knows that coming to our block, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, right? So uh, the ice cream man comes, and my neighbor Tara buys ice cream for her kids, and I'm about to buy one for Carmine, and she buys one for Carmine. I get him just a, a Dixie cup with a little bit of vanilla ice cream because how much is he going to eat? And um, he has maybe a third of it. Look at he split, right? And then I figure, okay, no big deal. He didn't eat the rest of it. I'll give it to Rachel because she, she would normally always just eat the rest of uh, Carmine's ice cream. I'm trying to stay away from sugar so that I can get into the Air Force. But I... Uh, 
I bring the ice cream, Carmine and I bring it into the house for her to finish. And then immediately as I'm handing it to her, I remembered, oh, that's right, you're not eating dairy now. So that ice cream is still in our freezer. I'm not sure how long it stays. I mean, it's soft serve, so it's best consumed right away. But I'm betting I'm betting if she tries this lactate, she may like it. She may, meaning not that she wouldn't like the taste as it is, meaning she might be able to not have it upset her stomach. So we'll see where that goes. So Friday, as I mentioned, a friend of mine has been trying for years to take, and this is a close friend, um, that he's been trying for years to take me to a Bruce Springsteen concert. He maintains that the reason I don't get what's so special about Bruce Springsteen is because I've never experienced him as a concert. Maybe that's true. I... I think my attitude towards Bruce Springsteen is going to be the same after this concert. But whatever, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'll go. I'll have a couple of beers, uh, spend an evening with my buddy, and and hear some good songs. Hopefully, he performs Atlantic City, and no big deal, all good. So I'm thinking, how long can this concert go? I, I look up what the other recent Springsteen concerts have gone for, and I imagine this is going to be a little extra because it's in New Jersey and Springsteen is Mr. New Jersey. These concerts go on for two hours and 40 minutes. What? Now, that's, that's a long time, isn't it? To watch somebody sit there and sing? Isn't that a long time? That's right. I think it's a long time. Are you are you a concert goer, Matt Plays? I know uh, Alex is. I've been to a lot of concerts, not recently, but yeah, that is a long concert. Springsteen is known for going on for like three and four hours. So, so that's not just me, though. That's long, right? Yeah, that is a long concert. Okay. Use concerts are usually like an hour and a half. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. I'm thinking, okay, well, it's an hour and a half. Bruce uh, is known to go on and do a lot of encores, and people will yell out songs, and they'll just play them, stuff like that. Frank. I mean, he switches it up. It's yeah. a bang for your buck. I've always wanted to see him, too. I've heard that he's sweating buckets on the stage, and he goes on for, like you said, at least a couple hours. I think you'll have a ball. I'm sure I will. I'm sure it'll be a great time. Um, but explain to me the big deal about a concert, not just with Bruce, but just in general, right? So you you can listen to these songs, especially in this day and age, whenever you want. You could put in a CD, a record, or listen digitally. Listen to the exact same songs in the comfort of where you, wherever you want to be. And like we've seen with movie theaters, people aren't going to movie theaters because they can watch the same movies at home, have access to their snacks, pause when they want to pause. Why is the concert experience so much more magical than just listening to the music how you want to listen to it? Because you're seeing that performer that you've listened to over and over again on the radio or wherever you listen, live, the song performed live, you're hearing a live band, live music is a total different experience than just listening to it on a record Mm -hmm. or on a CD or an MP3. Yeah. Uh, See, I think maybe that's what I don't necessarily have a full appreciation of, is why the live music is so much better than recorded music. And I get that it is, because everybody says the same thing that you guys say. Everybody. Well, then you also have the aspect of the whole crowd is into it, the energy's there. 
you get goosebumps when they go to the crowd and everybody's singing the lyrics instead of the you know the singer of the band. I, I hear it's, that. It's I, a whole vibe. I'll tell you what. You know, my dad took me to a World Series game uh, many years ago, many years ago, and uh, uh, the Yankees were playing. And he's a Yankee fan. I'm a Met fan. And that was the case as a child. And I was much more anti-Yankee than I am now. I'm still anti-Yankee, but I was very anti-Yankee. And I get, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a stick in the mud. I wanted to be a good sport. So I pretended to root for the Yankees and I cheered when they scored and everything because I didn't want to upset him. And I didn't want to be the only guy there upset when the Yankees were scoring runs in the middle of the world, world series. But I did feel, even though I was relatively young at the time, I did feel like a fraud kind of pretending that I'm all into this. And I'm concerned that that might be the same situation, that one of two things happens, that either I'm the only guy there sort of politely clapping while everybody else is is tearing their hair out of their scalps because they're so excited, or I am pretending to be just as fanatical as everybody else is when really I I don't care. I'm just kind of waiting for it to be over. But we'll see. I'm I'm going to approach it with an open mind, and we'll see what happens. 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight, the song by Stevie G and the Mountain Ears. All right, we're going to give you an opportunity to uh, be heard for 15 seconds at 800-848-9222. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Neil! Why don't you invite Dr. Sky over to cook your dinner to make you a meal out of this world? Oh, Raji. Uh, uh, I was listening to you, Mark Levine, and please stop the hankering for war. You refuse to volunteer yourself to serve hiding in your bunker. Enough already with the wall mongering. Fred. Hey, Frank, yesterday I was sitting in the park contemplating why Frisbees get larger as they come towards you. And then it hit me. (laughs) Mike. Morning, Frank. A fake personal assistant in a fake world for a fake radio show? Sounds perfectly fake to me. David. Julian Sands is still missing after three months, and I'm wondering if he would be getting no coverage if he were Brad Pitt or somebody like that. And finally, Roy. All listeners, do not listen to Curtis or that dingbat Avery the way they pick on Frank. It's called bullying. Don't listen to Curtis. Thank you, Roy. Everyone else, uh, we'll try and get to you uh, tomorrow. 
We got an action-packed show tomorrow. We'll see who chooses to show up, uh, and uh, I'll certainly be here. Frank Morano, good day.